This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Jewels of Gwalur by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Phil Chenever for LibriVox. It runs two hours, five minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenever. Jewels of Gwalor by Robert E. Howard. Chapter One. Paths of Intrigue. The cliffs rose sheer from the jungle. Towering ramparts of stone that glinted jade-blue and dull crimson in the rising sun, and curved away and away to east and west, above the waving emerald ocean of fronds and leaves. It looked insurmountable, that giant palisade with its sheer curtains of solid rock, in which bits of quartz winked dazzlingly in the sunlight. But the man who was working his tedious way upward— was already halfway to the top. He came of a race of hillmen accustomed to scaling forbidden crags, and he was a man of unusual strength and agility. His only garment was a pair of short red silk breeks, and his sandals were slung to his back out of the way, as were his sword and dagger. The man was powerfully built, supple as a panther. His skin was bronzed by the sun, his square-cut black mane confined by a silver band about his temples. His iron muscles, quick eye, and sure feet served him well here, for it was a climb to test these qualities to the utmost. A hundred and fifty feet below him waved the jungle. An equal distance above him the rim of the cliffs was etched against the morning sky. He labored like one driven by the necessity of haste. Yet he was forced to move at a snail's pace, clinging like a fly on a wall. His groping hands and feet found niches and knobs, precarious holes at best, and sometimes he virtually hung by his fingernails. Yet upward he went, clawing, squirming, fighting for every foot. At times he paused to rest his aching muscles, and, shaking the sweat out of his eyes, twisted his head to stare searchingly out over the jungle, combing the green expanse for any trace of human life or motion. Now the summit was not far above him, and he observed, only a few feet above his head, a break in the sheer stone of the cliff. An instant later he had reached it, a small cavern just below the edge of the rim. As his head rose above the lip of its floor, he grunted. He clung there, his elbows hooked over the lip. The cave was so tiny that it was little more than a niche cut in the stone. It held an occupant, a shriveled mummy, cross-legged, arms folded on the withered breast, upon which the shrunken head was sunk, sat in the little cavern. The limbs were bound in place with rawhide thongs, which had become mere rotted wisps. 
If the farm had ever been clothed, the ravages of time had long ago reduced the garments to dust. But thrust between the crossed arms and the shrunken breast, there was a roll of parchment, yellowed with age to the color of old ivory. The climber stretched forth a long arm and wrenched away this cylinder. Without investigation he thrust it into his girdle and hauled himself up until he was standing in the opening of the niche. A spring upward, and he caught the rim of the cliffs, and pulled himself up and over almost with the same motion. There he halted, panting, and stared downward. It was like looking into the interior of a vast bowl, rimmed by a circular stone wall. The floor of the bowl was covered with trees and denser vegetation, though nowhere did the growth duplicate the jungle denseness of the outer forest. The cliffs marched around it without a break, and of uniform height. It was a freak of nature, not to be paralleled, perhaps, in the whole world. A vast, natural amphitheater, a circular bit of forested plain, three or four miles in diameter, cut off from the rest of the world, and confined within the ring of those palisaded cliffs. But the man on the cliffs did not devote his thoughts to marveling at the topographical phenomenon. With tense eagerness he searched the treetops below him, and exhaled a gusty sigh when he caught the glint of marble domes amid the twinkling green. It was no myth, then. Below him lay the fabulous and deserted palace of Alcmenon. Conan the Cimmerian, late of the Baraka Isles of the Black Coast, and of many other climes where life ran wild, had come to the kingdom of Kishan following the lure of a fabled treasure that outshone the horde of the Turanian kings. Kishan was a barbaric kingdom lying in the eastern hinterlands of Kush, where the broad grasslands merge with the forests that roll up from the south. The people were a mixed race, a dusky nobility ruling a population that was largely pure negro. The rulers, princes, and high priests claimed descent from a white race which, in a mythical age, had ruled a kingdom whose capital city was Alcmenon. Conflicting legends sought to explain the reason for that race's eventual downfall and the abandonment of the city by the survivors. Equally nebulous were the tales of the Teeth of Gwalor, the treasure of Alcmenon. But these misty legends had been enough to bring Conan to Kishon, over vast distances of plain, river-laced jungle, and mountains. He had found Kishon, which itself was considered mythical by many northern and western nations, and he had heard enough to confirm the rumors of the treasure that men called the Teeth of Gwalor. But its hiding-place he could not learn, and he was confronted with the necessity of explaining his presence in Kishon. Unattached strangers were not welcome there. But he was not nonplussed. With cool assurance he made his offer to the stately, plumed, suspicious grandees of the barbarically magnificent court. He was a professional fighting man. In search of employment, he said, he had come to Kishan. 
For a price he would train the armies of Kishan and lead them against Punt, their hereditary enemy, whose recent successes in the field had aroused the fury of Kishan's irascible king. This proposition was not so audacious as it might seem. Conan's fame had preceded him, even into distant Kishan. His exploits as a chief of the Black Corsairs, those wolves of the southern coasts, had made his name known, admired, and feared throughout the Black Kingdoms. He did not refuse tests devised by the Dusky Lords. Skirmishes along the borders were incessant, affording the Cimmerian plenty of opportunities to demonstrate his ability at hand-to-hand -hand fighting. His reckless ferocity impressed the lords of Kishan, already aware of his reputation as a leader of men, and the prospects seemed favorable. All Conan secretly desired was employment to give him legitimate excuse for remaining in Kishan long enough to locate the hiding-place of the Teeth of Gwalor. Then there came an interruption. Thutmerkwi came to Kishan at the head of an embassy from Zimbabwe. Thutmerki was a Stygian, an adventurer and a rogue, whose wits had recommended him to the twin kings of the great hybrid trading kingdom, which lay many days' march to the east. He and the Cimmerian knew each other of old, and without love. Thutmerki likewise had a proposition to make to the king of Kishan, and it also concerned the conquest of Punt which kingdom, incidentally, lying east of Kishan, had recently expelled the Zimbabwean traders and burned their fortresses. His offer outweighed even the prestige of Conan. He pledged himself to invade Punt from the east with a host of black spearmen, Shemitish archers, and mercenary swordsmen, and to aid the king of Kishan to annex the hostile kingdom. The benevolent kings of Zimbabwe desired only a monopoly of the trade of Kishan and her tributaries, and as a pledge of good faith, some of the teeth of Gwalor. These would be put to no base usage. Thutmerki hastened to explain to the suspicious chieftains. They would be placed in the temple of Zimbabwe, beside the squat gold idols of Dagon and Durkito sacred guests in the holy shrine of the kingdom, to seal the covenant between Kishan and Zimbabwe. This statement brought a savage grin to Conan's hard lips. The Cimmerian made no attempt to match wits and intrigue with Tutmerqui and his Shemitish partner Zargiba. He knew that if Tutmerqui won his point, he would insist on the instant banishment of his rival. There was but one thing for Conan to do. Find the jewels before the king of Kishan made up his mind, and flee with them. But by this time he was certain that they were not hidden in Kishia, the royal city, which was a swarm of thatched huts crowding about a mud wall that enclosed a palace of stone and mud and bamboo. While he fumed with nervous impatience, the high priest Gorulga announced that before any decision could be reached, the will of the gods must be ascertained concerning the proposed alliance with Zimbabwe and the pledge of objects long held holy and inviolate. The oracle of Alcminon must be consulted. 
This was an awesome thing, and it caused tongues to wag excitedly in palace and beehive hut. Not for a century had the priests visited the silent city. The oracle men said, was the Princess Yelaya, the last ruler of Alcminon, who had died in the full bloom of her youth and beauty, and whose body had miraculously remained unblemished throughout the ages. Of old priests had made their way into the haunted city, and she had taught them wisdom. The last priest to seek the oracle had been a wicked man, who had sought to steal for himself the curiously cut jewels that men called the Teeth of Gwalor. But some doom had come upon him in the deserted place, from which his acolytes, fleeing, had told tales of horror that had for a hundred years frightened the priests from the city and the oracle. But Gorulga, the present high priest, as one confident in his knowledge of his own integrity, announced that he would go with a handful of followers to revive the ancient custom. And in the excitement tongues buzzed indiscreetly, and Conan caught the clue for which he had sought for weeks, the overheard whisper of a lesser priest that sent the Cimmerians stealing out of Kashia the night before the dawn when the priests were to start. Riding as hard as he dared, for a night and a day and a night, he came in the early dawn to the cliffs of Alcminon, which stood in the southwestern corner of the kingdom, amid uninhabited jungle which was taboo to common men. None but the priests dared approach the haunted vale within a distance of many miles, and not even a priest had entered Alcminon for a hundred years. No man had ever climbed these cliffs, legend said, and none but the priests knew the secret entrance into the valley. Conan did not waste time looking for it. Steeps that balked these people, horsemen and dwellers of plain and level forest, were not impossible for a man born in the rugged hills of Samaria. Now on the summit of the cliffs he looked down into the circular valley, and wondered what plague, war, or superstition had driven the members of that ancient race forth from their stronghold to mingle with and be absorbed by the tribes that hemmed them in. This valley had been their citadel. There the palace stood, and there only the royal family and their court dwelt. The real city stood outside the cliffs. Those waving masses of green jungle vegetation hid its ruins. But the domes that glistened in the leaves below him were the unbroken pinnacles of the royal palace of Alcminon, which had defied the corroding ages. Swinging a leg over the rim, he went down swiftly. The inner side of the cliffs was more broken, not quite so sheer. In less than half the time it had taken him to ascend the outer side, he dropped to the swarded valley floor. With one hand on his sword, he looked alertly about him. There was no reason to suppose men lied when they said that Alcminon was empty and deserted, haunted only by the ghosts of the dead past. But it was Conan's nature to be suspicious and wary. The silence was primordial. Not even a leaf quivered on a branch. When he bent to peer under the trees he saw nothing but the marching rows of trunks, receding and receding into the blue gloom of the deep woods. 
Nevertheless, he went warily, sword in hand, his restless eyes combing the shadows from side to side, his springy tread making no sound on the sward. All about him he saw signs of an ancient civilization. Marble fountains, voiceless and crumbling, stood in circles of slender trees, whose patterns were too symmetrical to have been a chance of nature. Forest growth and underbrush had invaded the evenly planned groves, but their outlines were still visible. Broad pavements ran away under the trees, broken and with grass growing through the wide cracks. He glimpsed walls with ornamented copings, lattices of carven stone that might once have served as the walls of pleasure pavilions. Ahead of him, through the trees, the domes gleamed, and the bulk of the structure supporting them became more apparent as he advanced. Presently, pushing through a screen of vine-tangled branches, he came into a comparatively open space, where the trees straggled, unencumbered by undergrowth, and saw before him the wide, pillared portico of the palace. As he mounted the broad marble steps, he noted that the building was in far better state of preservation than the lesser structures he had glimpsed. The thick walls and massive pillars seemed too powerful to crumble before the assault of time and the elements. The same enchanted quiet brooded over all. The cat-like pad of his sandaled feet seemed startlingly loud in the stillness. Somewhere in this palace lay the effigy or image which had in times past served as oracle for the priests of Kishan. And somewhere in the palace, unless that indiscreet priest had babbled a lie, was hidden the treasure of the forgotten kings of Alcminon. Conan passed into a broad, lofty hall lined with tall columns, between which arches gaped, their door long rotted away. He traversed this in a twilight dimness, and at the other end passed through great double-valved bronze doors, which stood partly open, as they might have stood for centuries. He emerged into a vast domed chamber, which must have served as audience hall for the kings of Alcminon. It was octagonal in shape, and the great dome, up to which the lofty ceiling curved obviously, was cunningly pierced, for the chamber was much better lighted than the hall which led to it. At the further side of the great room there rose a dais, with broad lapis lazuli steps leading up to it, and on that dais there stood a massive chair with ornate arms and a high back, which, once doubtless, supported a cloth of gold canopy. Conan grunted explosively, and his eyes lit. The golden throne of Alcminon, named in immemorial legendary. He weighed it with a practiced eye. It represented a fortune in itself, if he were but able to bear it away. Its richness fired his imagination concerning the treasure itself, and made him burn with eagerness. His fingers itched to plunge among the gems he had heard described by storytellers in the market squares of Kashia, who repeated the tales handed down from mouth to mouth through the centuries. Jewels not to be duplicated in the world, rubies, emeralds, diamonds, bloodstones, 
opals, sapphires, the loot of the ancient world. He had expected to find the oracle effigy seated on the throne, but since it was not, it was probably placed in some other part of the palace, if indeed such a thing really existed. But since he had turned his face toward Kishan, so many myths had proved to be realities that he did not doubt that he would find some kind of image or god. Behind the throne there was a narrow arched doorway, which doubtless had been masked by hangings in the days of Agmenon's life. He glanced through it, and saw that it led into an alcove empty, and with a narrow corridor leading off from it at right angles. Turning away from it, he spied another arch to the left of the dais, and it, unlike the others, was furnished with a door. Nor was it any common door. The portal was of the same rich metal as the throne, and carved with many curious arabesques. At his touch it swung open so readily that its hinges might recently have been oiled. Inside he halted, staring. He was in a square chamber of no great dimensions, whose marble walls rose to an ornate ceiling inlaid with gold. Gold friezes ran about the base and the top of the walls, and there was no door other than the one through which he had entered. But he noted these details mechanically. His whole attention was centered on the shape which lay on an ivory dais before him. He had expected an image, probably carved with the skill of a forgotten art. But no art could mimic the perfection of the figure that lay before him. It was no effigy of stone or metal or ivory. It was the actual body of a woman, and by what dark art the ancients had preserved that form unblemished for so many ages, Conan could not even guess. The very garments she wore were intact, and Conan scowled at that, a vague uneasiness stirring at the back of his mind. The arts that preserve the body should not have affected the garments. Yet there they were, gold breastplate set with concentric circles of small gems, gilded sandals, and a short silken skirt upheld by a jeweled girdle. Neither cloth nor metal showed any sign of decay. Yelaya was coldly beautiful, even in death. Her body was like alabaster, slender yet voluptuous. A great crimson jewel gleamed against the darkly piled foam of her hair. Conan stood frowning down at her, and then tapped the dais with his sword. Possibilities of a hollow containing the treasure occurred to him, but the dais rang solid. He turned and paced the chamber in some indecision. Where should he search first in the limited time at his disposal? The priest he had overheard babbling to a courtesan had said the treasure was hidden in the palace, but that included a space of considerable vastness. He wondered if he should hide himself until the priests had come and gone, and then renew the search. But there was a strong chance that they might take the jewels with them when they returned to Kashia, for he was convinced that Thutmerkri had corrupted Gorulga. Conan could predict Thutmerkri's plans from his knowledge of the man. 
He knew that it had been Thutmerkri who had proposed the conquest of Punt to the kings of Zimbabwe, which conquest was but one move toward their real goal, the capture of the teeth of Gwalor. Those wary kings would demand proof that the treasure really existed before they made any move. The jewels that Mercury asked as a pledge would furnish that proof. With positive evidence of the treasure's reality, the kings of Zimbabwe would move. Punt would be invaded simultaneously from the east and the west, but the Zimbabweans would see to it that the Kishani did most of the fighting, and then, when both Punt and Kishan were exhausted from the struggle, the Zimbabweans would crush both races, loot Kishan, and take the treasure by force, if they had to destroy every building and torture every living human in the kingdom. But there was always another possibility. If Thutmerkri could get his hands on the hoard, it would be characteristic of the man to cheat his employers, steal the jewels for himself, and decamp, leaving the Zimbabwean emissaries holding the sack. Conan believed that this consulting of the oracle was but a ruse to persuade the king of Kishan to accede to Thutmerkri's wishes, for he never for a moment doubted that Gorulga was as subtle and devious as all the rest mixed up in this grand swindle. Conan had not approached the high priest himself, because in the game of bribery he would have no chance against Thutmerkri, and to attempt it would be to play directly into the Stygian's hands. Gorulga could denounce the Cimmerian to the people, establish a reputation for integrity, and rid Thutmerkri of his rival at one stroke. He wondered how Thutmerkri had corrupted the high priest, and just what could be offered as a bribe to a man who had the greatest treasure in the world under his fingers. At any rate, he was sure that the oracle would be made to say that the gods willed it that Kishan should follow Thutmerkri's wishes, and he was sure, too, that it would drop a few pointed remarks concerning himself. After that, Kashia would be too hot for the Cimmerian, nor had Conan had any intention of returning when he rode away in the night. The oracle chamber held no clue for him. He went forth into the great throne-room, and laid his hands on the throne. It was heavy, but he could tilt it up. The floor beneath a thick marble dais was solid. Again he sought the alcove. His mind clung to a secret crypt near the oracle. Painstakingly he began to tap along the walls, and presently his taps rang hollow at a spot opposite the mouth of the narrow corridor. Looking more closely, he saw that the crack between the marble panel at that point and the next was wider than usual. He inserted a dagger point and pried. Silently the panel swung open, revealing a niche in the wall, but nothing else. He swore feelingly. The aperture was empty, and it did not look as if it had ever served as a crypt for the treasure. Leaning into the niche, he saw a system of tiny holes in the wall, about on a level with a man's mouth. He peered through and grunted understandingly. That was the wall that formed the partition between the alcove and the oracle chamber. Those holes had not been visible in the chamber. Conan grinned. 
This explained the mystery of the oracle, but it was a bit cruder than he had expected. Gorulga would plant either himself or some trusted minion in that niche to talk through the holes, and the credulous acolytes would accept it as the veritable voice of Yelaya. Remembering something, the Cimmerian drew forth the roll of parchment he had taken from the mummy, and unrolled it carefully, as it seemed ready to fall to pieces with age. He scowled over the dim characters with which it was covered. In his roaming about the world the giant adventurer had picked up a wide smattering of knowledge, particularly including the speaking and reading of many alien tongues. Many a sheltered scholar would have been astonished at the Cimmerian's linguistic abilities, for he had experienced many adventures where knowledge of a strange language had meant the difference between life and death. These characters were puzzling, at once familiar and unintelligible, and presently he discovered the reason. They were the characters of archaic Pelishtim, which possessed many points of difference from the modern script with which he was familiar, and which, three centuries ago, had been modified by conquest by a nomad tribe. This older, purer script baffled him. He made out a recurrent phrase, however, which he recognized as a proper name. Beat Yakin. He gathered that it was the name of the writer. Scowling, his lips unconsciously moving as he struggled with the task, he blundered through the manuscript, finding much of it untranslatable and most of the rest of it obscure. He gathered that the writer, the mysterious Bit Yakin, had come from afar with his servants and entered the valley of Alcminon. Much that followed was meaningless, interspersed as it was with unfamiliar phrases and characters. Such as he could translate seemed to indicate the passing of a very long period of time. The name of Yilaya was repeated frequently, and toward the last part of the manuscript it became apparent that Bit Yakin knew that death was upon him. With a slight start, Conan realized that the mummy in the cavern must be the remains of the writer of the manuscript, the mysterious Pelishtim Bit Yakin. The man had died, as he had prophesied, and his servants, obviously, had placed him in that open crypt, high up on the cliffs, according to his instructions before his death. It was strange that Bit Yakin was not mentioned in any of the legends of Alcminon. Obviously he had come to the valley after it had been deserted by the original inhabitants. The manuscript indicated as much. But it seemed peculiar that the priests who came in the old days to consult the oracle had not seen the man or his servants. Conan felt sure that the mummy and this parchment were more than a hundred years old. Beat Yakin had dwelt in the valley when the priests came of old to bow before dead Yelaya. Yet concerning him the legends were silent, telling only of a deserted city haunted only by the dead. Why had the man dwelt in this desolate spot, and to what unknown destination had his servants departed after disposing of their master's corpse? Conan shrugged his shoulders and thrust the parchment back into his girdle. He started violently, the skin on the backs of his hands tingling. Startlingly, shockingly, in the slumberous stillness, there had boomed the deep, strident clangor of a great gong. 
He wheeled, crouching like a great cat, sword in hand, glaring down the narrow corridor from which the sound had seemed to come. Had the priest of Kashia arrived? This was improbable, he knew. They would not have had time to reach the valley. But that gong was indisputable evidence of human presence. Conan was basically a direct actionist. Such subtlety as he possessed had been acquired through contact with the more devious races. When taken off guard by some unexpected occurrence, he reverted instinctively to type. So now, instead of hiding or slipping away in the opposite direction, as the average man might have done, he ran straight down the corridor in the direction of the sound. His sandals made no more noise than the pads of a panther would have made. His eyes were slits, his lips unconsciously a snarl. Panic had momentarily touched his soul at the shock of that unexpected reverberation, and the red rage of the primitive that is awakened by the threat of peril always lurked close to the surface of the Cimmerian. He emerged presently from the winding corridor into a small open court. Something glinting in the sun caught his eye. It was the gong, a great gold disc, hanging from a gold arm extending from the crumbling wall. A brass mallet lay near, but there was no sound or sight of humanity. The surrounding arches gaped emptily. Conan crouched inside the doorway for what seemed a long time. There was no sound or movement throughout the great palace. His patience exhausted at last. He glided around the curve of the court, peered into the arches, ready to leap either way like a flash of light, or to strike right or left as a cobra strikes. He reached the gong, stared into the arch nearest it. He saw only a dim chamber, littered with the debris of decay. Beneath the gong the polished marble flags showed no footprints, but there was a scent in the air, a faintly fetid odor he could not classify. His nostrils dilated like those of a wild beast as he sought in vain to identify it. He turned toward the arch. With appalling suddenness the seemingly solid flags splintered and gave way under his feet. Even as he fell he spread wide his arms and caught the edges of the aperture that gaped beneath him. The edges crumbled off under his clutching fingers. Down into utter darkness he shot, into black icy water that gripped him and whirled him away with breathless speed. Chapter 2 A Goddess Awakens the Cimmerian at first made no attempt to fight the current that was sweeping him through lightless night. He kept himself afloat, gripping between his teeth the sword which he had not relinquished even in his fall, and did not even seek to guess to what doom he was being born. But suddenly a beam of light lanced the darkness ahead of him. He saw the surging, seething black surface of the water, in turmoil as if disturbed by some monster of the deep, and he saw the sheer stone walls of the channel curved up to a vault overhead. On each side ran a narrow ledge just below the arching roof, but they were far out of his reach. At one point this roof had been broken, probably fallen in, and the light was streaming through the aperture. 
Beyond that shaft of light was utter blackness, and panic assailed the Cimmerian as he saw he would be swept on past that spot of light and into the unknown blackness again. Then he saw something else. Bronze ladders extending from the ledges to the water's surface at regular intervals. And there was one just ahead of him. Instantly he struck out for it, fighting the current that would have held him in the middle of the stream. It dragged at him with tangible, animate, slimy hands. But he buffeted the rushing surge with the strength of desperation, and now drew closer and closer inshore, fighting furiously for every inch. Now he was even with the ladder, and with a fierce, gasping plunge he gripped the bottom rung and hung on, breathless. A few seconds later he struggled up out of the seething water, trusting his weight dubiously to the corroded rungs. They sagged and bent, but they held, and he clambered up onto the narrow ledge, which ran along the wall scarcely a man's length below the curving roof. The tall Cimmerian was forced to bend his head as he stood up. A heavy bronze door showed in the stone at a point even with the head of the ladder, but it did not give to Conan's efforts. He transferred his sword from his teeth to its scabbard, spitting blood, for the edge had cut his lips in that fierce fight with the river, and turned his attention to the broken roof. He could reach his arms up through the crevice and grip the edge, and careful testing told him it would bear his weight. An instant later he had drawn himself up through the hole and found himself in a wide chamber in a state of extreme disrepair. Most of the roof had fallen in, as well as a great section of the floor, which was laid over the vault of a subterranean river. Broken arches opened into other chambers and corridors, and Conan believed he was still in the great palace. He wondered uneasily how many chambers in that palace had underground water directly under them, and when the ancient flags or tiles might give way again and precipitate him back into the current from which he had just crawled. And he wondered just how much of an accident that fall had been. Had those rotten flags simply chanced to give way beneath his weight? Or was there a more sinister explanation? One thing at least was obvious. He was not the only living thing in that palace. That gong had not sounded of its own accord, whether the noise had been meant to lure him to his death or not. The silence of the palace became suddenly sinister, fraught with crawling menace. Could it be someone on the same mission as himself? A sudden thought occurred to him at the memory of the mysterious Bit Yakin. Was it possible that this man had found the teeth of Gwalor in his long residence in Alcminon, that his servants had taken them with them when they departed? The possibility that he might be following a will-o'-the-wisp infuriated the Cimmerian. Choosing a corridor which he believed led back toward the part of the palace he had first entered, he hurried along it, stepping gingerly as he thought of that black river that seethed and foamed somewhere below his feet. 
His speculations recurrently revolved about the oracle chamber and its cryptic occupant. Somewhere in that vicinity must be the clue to the mystery of the treasure, if indeed it still remained in its immemorial hiding-place. The great palace lay silent as ever, disturbed only by the swift passing of his sandaled feet. The chambers and halls he traversed were crumbling into ruin, but as he advanced the ravages of decay became less apparent. He wondered briefly for what purpose the ladders had been suspended from the ledges over the subterranean river, but dismissed the matter with a shrug. He was little interested in speculating over unremunerative problems of antiquity. He was not sure just where the oracle chamber lay from where he was, but presently he emerged into a corridor which led back into the great throne room under one of the arches. He had reached a decision. It was useless for him to wander aimlessly about the palace seeking the hoard. He would conceal himself somewhere here, wait until the Kashani priests came, and then, after they had gone through the farce of consulting the oracle, he would follow them to the hiding-place of the gems, to which he was certain they would go. Perhaps they would only take a few of the jewels with him. He would content himself with the rest. Drawn by a morbid fascination, he re-entered the oracle chamber and stared down again at the motionless figure of the princess, who was worshipped as a goddess, entranced by her frigid beauty. What cryptic secret was locked in that marvelously molded form? He started violently. The breath sucked through his teeth. The short hairs prickled at the back of his scalp. The body still lay as he had first seen it, silent, motionless, in breastplates of jeweled gold, gilded sandals, and silken skirt. But now there was a subtle difference. The lissom limbs were not rigid. A peach bloom touched the cheeks. The lips were red. With a panicky curse, Conan ripped out his sword. Crom, she's alive! At his words the long, dark lashes lifted. The eyes opened and gaped up at him inscrutably, dark, lustrous, mystical. He glared in frozen speechlessness. She sat up with a supple ease, still holding his ensorcelled stare. He licked his dry lips and found voice. You are... "'Are you Yelaya?' he stammered. "'I am Yelaya.' The voice was rich and musical, and he stared with new wonder. "'Do not fear. I will not harm you if you do my bidding.' "'How can a dead woman come to life after all these centuries?' he demanded, as if skeptical of what his senses told him. A curious gleam was beginning to smolder in his eyes." She lifted her arms in a mystical gesture. I am a goddess. A thousand years ago there descended upon me the curse of the greater gods, the gods of darkness beyond the borders of light. The mortal in me died. The goddess in me could never die. Here I have lain for so many centuries, to awaken each night at sunset, and hold my court as of yore, 
with specters drawn from the shadows of the past. Man, if you would not view that which will blast your soul forever, get hence quickly, I command you, go. The voice became imperious, and her slender arm lifted and pointed. Conan, his eyes burning slits, slowly sheathed his sword, but he did not obey her order. He stepped closer, as if impelled by a powerful fascination. Without the slightest warning, he grabbed her up in a bear-like grasp. She screamed a very ungoddess-like scream, and there was a sound of ripping silk, as with one ruthless wrench he tore off her skirt. Goddess! Ha! His bark was full of angry contempt. He ignored the frantic writhings of his captive. I thought it was strange that a princess of Alcmenon would speak with a Corinthian accent. As soon as I gathered my wits, I knew I'd seen you somewhere. You're Muriela, Zargheba's Corinthian dancing girl. This crescent-shaped birthmark on your hip proves it. I saw it once when Zargheba was whipping you. Goddess! Bah! He smacked the betraying hip contemptuously and resoundingly with his open hand, and the girl yelped piteously. All her imperiousness had gone out of her. She was no longer a mystical figure of antiquity, but a terrified and humiliated dancing girl, such as can be bought at almost any Shemitish marketplace. She lifted up her voice and wept unashamedly. Her captor glared down at her with angry triumph. Goddess! Ha! So you were one of the veiled women Zargheba brought to Kashia with him. Did you think you could fool me, you little idiot? A year ago I saw you in Akbitana with that swine Zargheba, and I don't forget faces, or women's figures. I think I'll... Squirming about in his grasp, she threw her slender arms about his massive neck in an abandon of terror. Tears coursed down her cheeks, and her sobs quivered with a note of hysteria. Oh, please don't hurt me. Don't. I, I had to do it. Sargheba brought me here to act as the oracle. Why, you sacrilegious little hussy, rumbled Conan. Do you not fear the gods? Crom, is there no honesty anywhere? Oh, please, she begged, quivering with abject fright. I couldn't disobey Zargheba. Oh, what shall I do? I shall be cursed by these heathen gods. What do you think the priests will do to you if they find out you're an impostor? he demanded. At the thought her legs refused to support her, and she collapsed in a shuddering heap, clasping Conan's knees and mingling incoherent pleas for mercy and protection with piteous protestations of her innocence of any malign intention. It was a vivid change from her pose as the ancient princess, but not surprising. The fear that had nerved her then was now her undoing. "'Where is Zargheba?' he demanded. "'Stop yammering, damn it, and answer me.' "'Outside the palace,' she whimpered, watching for the priests. "'How many men with him?' "'None. We came alone.' 
Ha! It was much more like the satisfied grunt of a hunting line. You must have left Kashia a few hours after I did. Did you climb the cliffs? She shook her head, too choked with tears to speak coherently. With an impatient imprecation, he seized her slim shoulders and shook her until she gasped for breath. Will you quit that blubbering and answer me? How did you get into the valley? Sargheba knew the secret way, she gasped. The priest Gwarunga told him, and that Mercury. On the south side of the valley there is a broad pool, lying at the foot of the cliffs. There is a cave-mouth under the surface of the water that is not visible to the casual glance. We ducked under the water and entered it. The cave slopes up out of the water swiftly and leads through the cliffs. The opening on the side of the valley is masked by heavy thickets. "'I climbed the cliffs on the east side,' he muttered. "'Well, what then?' We came to the palace, and Zargheba hid me among the trees, while he went to look for the chamber of the oracle. I do not think he fully trusted Gwarunga. While he was gone I thought I heard a gong sound, but I was not sure. Presently Zargheba came and took me into the palace, and brought me to this chamber, where the goddess Elia lay upon the dais. He stripped the body and clothed me in the garments and ornaments. Then he went forth to hide the body and watch for the priests. I have been afraid. When you entered I wanted to leap up and beg you to take me away from this place. But I feared Zargheba. When you discovered I was alive I thought I could frighten you away. What were you to say to the oracle? he asked. I was to bid the priests to take the teeth of Gwalor and give some of them to Thutmerkri as a pledge, as he desired and place the rest in the palace at Kishia. I was to tell them that an awful doom threatened Kishan if they did not agree to Thutmerkri's proposals. And, uh, oh, yes, I was to tell them that you were to be skinned alive immediately. Thutmerkri wanted the treasure where he, or the Zambawans, could lay hand on it easily, muttered Conan, disregarding the remark concerning himself. I'll carve his liver yet. Garulga is a party to the swindle, of course. No, he believes in his gods and is incorruptible. He knows nothing about this. He will obey the oracle. It was all Thutmerkri's plan. Knowing the Kishani would consult the oracle, he had Zargheba bring me with the embassy from Zimbabwe, closely veiled and secluded. "'Well, I'm damned,' muttered Conan. "'A priest who honestly believes in his oracle and cannot be bribed? Crom! I wonder if it was Zargheba who banged that gong. Did he know I was here? Could he have known about that rotted flagging? Where is he now, girl?' "'Hiding in the thicket of lotus-trees, near the ancient avenue that leads from the south wall of the cliffs to the palace,' she answered. Then she renewed her importunities. Oh, Conan, have pity on me. I am afraid of this evil ancient place. I know I have heard stealthy footfalls padding about me. Oh, Conan, take me away with you. Sargheba will kill me when I have served his purpose here. I know it. The priests, too, will kill me if they discover my deceit. He is a 
devil. He bought me from a slave trader who stole me out of a caravan bound through southern Koth, and has made me the tool of his intrigues ever since. Take me away from him. You cannot be as cruel as he. Don't leave me to be slain here. Please, please. She was on her knees, clutching at Conan hysterically, her beautiful, tear-stained face upturned to him, her dark silken hair flowing in disorder over her white shoulders. Conan picked her up and set her on his knee. Listen to me. I'll protect you from Zargheba. The priest shall not know of your perfidy. But you've got to do as I tell you. She faltered promises of explicit obedience, clasping his corded neck as if seeking security from the contact. Good. When the priests come, you'll act the part of Yelaya, as Zargheba planned. It'll be dark, and in the torchlight they'll never know the difference. But you'll say this to them. It is the will of the gods that the Stygian and his Shemitish dogs be driven from Kishan. They are thieves and traitors who plot to rob the gods. Let the teeth of Gwalor be placed in the care of the general Conan. Let him lead the armies of Kishan. He is beloved of the gods. She shivered with an expression of desperation, but acquiesced. But Zargheba, she cried, he'll kill me. Don't worry about Zargheba, he grunted. I'll take care of that dog. Do you as I say. Here, put your hair up again. It's fallen all over your shoulders, and the gem's fallen out of it. He replaced the great glowing gem himself, nodding approval. It's worth a room full of slaves itself alone. Here, put your skirt back on. It's torn down the side, but the priests will never notice it. Wipe your face. A goddess doesn't cry like a whipped schoolgirl. By chrome, you do look like Elia, face, hair, figure, and all. If you act the goddess with the priests as well as you did with me, you'll fool them easily. I'll try, she shivered. Good. I'm going to find Zargheba. At that she became panicky again. No, don't leave me alone. This place is haunted. There's nothing here to harm you, he assured her impatiently. Nothing but Zargheba, and I'm going to look after him. I'll be back shortly. I'll be watching from close by in case anything goes wrong during the ceremony. If you play your part properly, nothing will go wrong. And turning, he hastened out of the oracle chamber. Behind him, Muriela squeaked wretchedly at his going. Twilight had fallen. The great rooms and halls were shadowy and indistinct. Copper friezes glinted dully through the dusk. Conan strode like a silent phantom through the great halls, with a sensation of being stared at from the shadowed recesses by invisible ghosts of the past. No wonder the girl was nervous amid such surroundings. He glided down the marble steps like a slinking panther, sword in hand. Silence reigned over the valley, and above the rim of the cliffs stars were blinking out. If the priests of Kashia had entered the valley, there was not a sound, not a movement in the greenery to betray them. He made out the ancient, broken, paved avenue, wandering away to the south, 
lost amid the cluttering masses of fronds and thick-leaved bushes. He followed it warily, hugging the edge of the paving where the shrubs massed their shadows thickly, until he saw ahead of him, dimly in the dusk, the clump of lotus trees, the strange growth peculiar to the black lands of Cush. There, according to the girl, Sargheba should be lurking. Conan became stealth personified. A velvet-footed shadow, he melted into the thickets. He approached the lotus grove by a circuitous movement, and scarcely the rustle of a leaf proclaimed his passing. At the edge of the trees he halted suddenly, crouched like a suspicious panther among the deep shrubs. Ahead of him, among the dense leaves, showed a pallid oval, dim in the uncertain light. It might have been one of the great white blossoms that shone thickly among the branches. But Conan knew that it was a man's face, and it was turned toward him. He shrank quickly deeper into the shadows. Had Zargheba seen him? The man was looking directly toward him. Seconds passed. That dim face had not moved. Conan could make out the dark tuft below that was the short black beard. And suddenly Conan was aware of something unnatural. Zargheba, he knew, was not a tall man. Standing erect, his head would scarcely top the Sumerian's shoulder, yet that face was on a level with Conan's own. Was the man standing on something? Conan bent and peered toward the ground below the spot where the face showed, but his vision was blocked by undergrowth and the thick boles of the trees. But he saw something else, and he stiffened. Through a slot in the underbrush he glimpsed the stem of the tree under which, apparently, Zargheba was standing. The face was directly in line with that tree. He should have seen below that face not the tree-trunk, but Zargheba's body. But there was no body there. Suddenly tenser than a tiger who stalks his prey, Conan glided deeper into the thicket, and a moment later drew aside a leafy branch and glared at the face that had not moved, nor would it ever move again of its own volition. He looked at Zargheba's severed head, suspended from the branch of the tree by its own long black hair. Chapter 3 The Return of the Oracle Conan wheeled supplely, sweeping the shadows with a fiercely questing stare. There was no sign of the murdered man's body. Only yonder the tall, lush grass was trampled and broken down, and the sward was dabbled darkly and wetly. Conan stood scarcely breathing as he strained his ears into the silence. The trees and bushes with their great pallid blossoms stood dark, still, and sinister, etched against the deepening dusk. Primitive fears whispered at the back of Conan's mind. Was this the work of the priests of Kishan? If so, where were they? Was it Zargheba, after all, who had struck the gong? Again there rose the memory of Bit-Yakin and his mysterious servants. Bit-Yakin was dead, shriveled to a hulk of wrinkled leather and bound in his hollowed crypt, 
to greet the rising sun forever. But the servants of Beat Yakin were unaccounted for. There was no proof they had ever left the valley. Conan thought of the girl, Muriela, alone and unguarded in that great shadowy palace. He wheeled and ran back down the shadowed avenue, and he ran as a suspicious panther runs, poised even in full stride to whirl right or left and strike death blows. The palace loomed through the trees, and he saw something else, the glow of fire reflecting redly from the polished marble. He melted into the bushes that lined the broken street, glided through the dense growth, and reached the edge of the open space before the portico. Voices reached him. Torches bobbed, and their flare shone on glossy ebon shoulders. The priests of Kishan had come. They had not advanced up the wide overgrown avenue as Zoghiba had expected them to do. Obviously there was more than one secret way into the valley of Alcminon. They were filing up the broad marble steps, holding their torches high. He saw Garulga at the head of the parade, a profile chiseled out of copper, etched in the torch-glare. The rest were acolytes, giant black men from whose skins the torches struck highlights. At the end of the procession there stalked a huge negro with an unusually wicked cast of countenance, in the sight of whom Conan scowled. That was Gwarunga, whom Muriela had named as the man who had revealed the secret of the pool entrance to Zargheba. Conan wondered how deeply the man was in the intrigues of the Stygian. He hurried toward the portico, circling the open space to keep in the fringing shadows. They left no one to guard the entrance. The torches streamed steadily down the long, dark hall. Before they reached the double-valved door at the other end, Conan had mounted the other steps and was in the hall behind them. Slinking swiftly along the column-lined wall, he reached the great door as they crossed the huge throne-room, their torches driving back the shadows. They did not look back. In single file, their ostrich plumes nodding, their leopard-skin tunics contrasting curiously with the marble and the arabesqued metal of the ancient palace, they moved across the wide room and halted momentarily at the golden door to the left of the throne dais. Gorulga's voice boomed eerily and hollowly in the great empty space, framed in sonorous phrases unintelligible to the lurking listener. Then the high priest thrust open the golden door and entered, bowing repeatedly from his waist, and behind him the torches sank and rose, showering flakes of flame, as the worshippers imitated their master. The gold door closed behind them, shutting out sound and sight, and Conan darted across the throne chamber and into the alcove behind the throne. He made less sound than a wind blowing across the chamber. Tiny beams of light streamed through the apertures in the wall as he pried open the secret panel. Gliding into the niche, he peered through. Muriela sat upright on the dais, her arms folded, her head leaning back against the wall, within a few inches of his eyes. 
The delicate perfume of her foamy hair was in his nostrils. He could not see her face, of course, but her attitude was as if she gazed tranquilly into some far gulf of space, over and beyond the shaven heads of the black giants who knelt before her. Conan grinned with appreciation. The little slut's an actress, he told himself. He knew she was shriveling with terror, but she showed no sign. In the uncertain flare of the torches, she looked exactly like the goddess he had seen lying on that same dais, if one could imagine that goddess imbued with vibrant life. Gorulga was booming forth some kind of a chant in an accent unfamiliar to Conan, and which was probably some invocation in the ancient tongue of Alcminon, handed down from generation to generation of high priests. It seemed interminable. Conan grew restless. The longer the thing lasted, the more terrific would be the strain on Moriella. If she snapped, he hitched his sword and dagger forward. He could not see the little trollop tortured and slain by these men. But the chant, deep, low-pitched, and indescribably ominous, came to a conclusion at last, and a shouted acclaim from the acolytes marked its period. Lifting his head and raising his arms toward the silent form on the dais, Garulga cried in the deep, rich resonance that was the natural attribute of the Kishani priest. O great goddess, dweller with the great one of darkness, let thy heart be melted, thy lips opened for the ears of thy slave, whose head is in the dust beneath thy feet. Speak, great goddess of the holy valley. Thou knowest the paths before us. The darkness that vexes us is as the light of the midday sun to thee. Shed the radiance of thy wisdom on the paths of thy servants. Tell us, O mouthpiece of the gods, what is their will concerning Thutmercri the Stygian? The high-piled, burnished mass of hair that caught the torchlight in dull bronze gleams quivered slightly. A gusty sigh rose from the blacks, half in awe, half in fear. Muriela's voice came plainly to Conan's ears in the breathless silence, and it seemed cold, detached, impersonal, though the Cimmerian winced at the Corinthian accent. It is the will of the gods that the Stygian and his Shemitish dogs be driven from Kishan. She was repeating his exact words. They are thieves and traitors who plot to rob the gods. Let the teeth of Gwalor be placed in the care of the general Conan. Let him lead the armies of Kishan. He is beloved of the gods. There was a quiver in her voice as she ended, and Conan began to sweat, believing she was on the point of an hysterical collapse. But the blacks did not notice any more than they identified the Corinthian accent of which they knew nothing. They smote their palms softly together, and a murmur of wonder and awe rose from them. Gorulga's eyes glittered fanatically in the torchlight. Yelaya has spoken, 
he cried in an exalted voice, "'It is the will of the gods. Long ago in the days of our ancestors they were made taboo and hidden at the command of the gods, who wrenched them from the awful jaws of Gwalur the king of darkness in the birth of the world.' At the command of the gods, the teeth of Gwalur were hidden. At their command, they shall be brought forth again. O oh, star-born goddess, give us your leave to go to the secret hiding-place of the teeth, to secure them for him whom the gods love. You have my leave to go, answered the false goddess, with an imperious gesture of dismissal that set Conan grinning again, and the priests backed out, ostrich plumes and torches rising and falling with the rhythm of their genuflections. The gold door closed, and with a moan the goddess fell back limply on the dais. "'Conan!' she whimpered faintly. "'Conan!' He hissed through the apertures, and, turning, glided from the niche and closed the panel. A glimpse past the jamb of the carven door showed him the torches receding across the great throne-room, but he was at the same time aware of a radiance that did not emanate from the torches. He was startled, but the solution presented itself instantly. An early moon had risen, and its light slanted through the pierced dome, which by some curious workmanship intensified the light. The shining dome of Alcminon was no fable, then. Perhaps its interior was of the curious, whitely flaming crystal found only in the hills of the black countries. The light flooded the throne-room and seeped into the chambers immediately adjoining. But as Conan made toward the door that led into the throne-room, he was brought around suddenly by a noise that seemed to emanate from the passage that led off into the alcove. He crouched at the mouth, staring into it, remembering the clangor of the gong that had echoed from it to lure him into a snare. The light from the dome filtered only a little way into that narrow corridor, and showed him only empty space. Yet he could have sworn that he had heard the furtive pad of a foot somewhere down it. While he hesitated, he was electrified by a woman's strangled cry from behind him. Bounding through the door behind the throne, he saw an unexpected spectacle in the crystal light. The torches of the priest had vanished from the great hall outside, but one priest was still in the palace, Gwarunga. His wicked features were convulsed with fury, and he grasped the terrified Muriela by the throat, choking her efforts to scream and plead, shaking her brutally. Traitorous! Between his thick red lips his voice hissed like a cobra. What games are you playing? Did not Zagheba tell you what to say? I... But Mercury told me, are you betraying your master, or is he betraying his friends through you? Slut! I'll twist off your false head, but first I'll— A widening of his captive's lovely eyes, as she stared over his shoulder, warned the huge black. He released her and wheeled, just as Conan's sword lashed down. 
The impact of the stroke knocked him headlong backward to the marble floor, where he lay twitching, blood oozing from a ragged gash in his scalp. Conan started toward him to finish the job, for he knew that the priest's sudden movement had caused the blade to strike flat. But Muriela threw her arms convulsively about him. "'I've done as you ordered,' she gasped hysterically. "'Take me away! Oh, please take me away!' "'We can't go yet,' he grunted. "'I want to follow the priests and see where they get the jewels. "'There may be more loot hidden there, but you can go with me. "'Where's the gem you wore in your hair?' "'It must have fallen out on the dais,' she stammered, feeling for it. "'I, I was so frightened. "'When the priests left me I ran out to find you, "'and this big brute had stayed behind, and he grabbed me— "'Well, go get it while I dispose of this carcass,' he commanded. "'Go on. That gem is worth a fortune itself.' She hesitated, as if loath to return to that cryptic chamber. Then, as he grasped Gwarunga's girdle and dragged him into the alcove, she turned and entered the oracle room. Conan dumped the senseless black on the floor and lifted his sword. The Cimmerian had lived too long in the wild places of the world to have any illusions about mercy. The only safe enemy was a headless enemy. But before he could strike, a startling scream checked the lifted blade. It came from the oracle chamber. "'Conan! Conan! She's come back!' The shriek ended in a gurgle and a scraping scuffle. With an oath, Conan dashed out of the alcove across the throne dais and into the oracle chamber almost before the sound had ceased. There he halted, glaring bewilderedly. To all appearances, Muriela lay placidly on the dais, eyes closed as in slumber. "'What in thunder are you doing?' he demanded acidly. "'Is this any time to be playing jokes?' His voice trailed away. His gaze ran along the ivory thigh molded in the close-fitting silk skirt. That skirt should gape from girdle to him, he knew, because it had been his own hand that tore it as he ruthlessly stripped the garment from the dancer's writhing body. But the skirt showed no rent. A single stride brought him to the dais, and he laid his hand on the ivory body, snatched it away as if it had encountered hot iron instead of the cold immobility of death. "'Grom!' he muttered, his eyes suddenly slits of balefire. "'It's not Moriella. It's Yelaya. He understood now that frantic scream that had burst from Moriella's lips when she entered the chamber. The goddess had returned. The body had been stripped by Zorghiba to furnish the accoutrements for the pretender, yet now it was clad in silk and jewels as Conan had first seen it. A peculiar prickling made itself manifest among the short hairs at the base of Conan's scalp. "'Moriella!' he shouted suddenly. "'Moriella, where the devil are you?' The walls threw back his voice mockingly. There was no entrance that he could see except the golden door, and none could have entered or departed through that without his knowledge. This much was indisputable. 
Yelaya had been replaced on the dais within the few minutes that had elapsed since Muriela had first left the chamber to be seized by Garunga. His ears were still tingling with the echoes of Muriela's scream, yet the Corinthian girl had vanished as if into thin air. There was but one explanation that offered itself to the Cimmerian, if he rejected the darker speculation that suggested the supernatural. Somewhere in the chamber there was a secret door, and even as the thought crossed his mind he saw it. In what had seemed a curtain of solid marble a thin perpendicular crack showed, and in the crack hung a wisp of silk. In an instant he was bending over it. That shred was from Moriella's torn skirt. The implication was unmistakable. It had been caught in the closing door and torn off, as she was borne through the opening by whatever grim beings were her captors. The bit of clothing had prevented the door from fitting perfectly into its frame. Thrusting his dagger-point into the crack, Conan exerted leverage from a corded forearm. The blade bent, but it was of unbreakable Akbitalan steel. The marble door opened. Conan's sword was lifted as he peered into the aperture beyond, but he saw no shape of menace. Light filtering into the oracle chamber revealed a short flight of steps cut out of marble. Pulling the door back to its fullest extent, he drove his dagger into a crack in the floor, propping it open. Then he went down the steps without hesitation. He saw nothing, heard nothing. A dozen steps down the stair ended in a narrow corridor which ran straight away into the gloom. He halted suddenly, poised like a statue at the foot of the stair, staring at the paintings which frescoed the walls, half hidden in the dim light which filtered down from above. The art was unmistakably Pelishtim. He had seen frescoes of identical characteristics on the walls of Oskalun, but the scenes depicted had no connection with anything Pelishtim, except for one human figure frequently recurrent, a lean, white-bearded old man whose racial characteristics were unmistakable. They seemed to represent various sections of the palace above. Several scenes showed a chamber he recognized as the oracle chamber, with the figure of Yelaya stretched upon the ivory dais and huge black men kneeling before it. And there were other figures, too, Figures that moved through the deserted palace, did the bidding of the Pelishtim, and dragged unnameable things out of the subterranean river. In a few seconds Conan stood frozen. Hitherto unintelligible phrases in the parchment manuscript blazed in his brain with chilling clarity. The loose bits of the pattern clicked into place. The mystery of Bit-Yakin was a mystery no longer, nor the riddle of Bit-Yakin's servants. Conan turned and peered into the darkness, an icy finger crawling along his spine. Then he went along the corridor, cat-footed and without hesitation, moving deeper and deeper into the darkness as he drew farther away from the stair. The air hung heavy with the odor he had scented in the court of the gong. 
Now, in utter blackness, he heard a sound ahead of him, the shuffle of bare feet, or the swish of loose garments against stone, he could not tell which. But an instant later his outstretched hand encountered a barrier which he identified as a massive door of carven metal. He pushed against it fruitlessly, and his sword-point sought vainly for a crack. It fitted into the sill and jams as if molded there. He exerted all his strength, his feet straining against the door, the veins nodding in his temples. It was useless. A charge of elephants would scarcely have shaken that titanic portal. As he leaned there he caught a sound on the other side that his ears instantly identified. It was the creak of rusty iron, like a lever scraping in its slot. Instinctively action followed recognition so spontaneously that sound, impulse, and action were practically simultaneous. And as his prodigious bound carried him backward, there was the rush of a great bulk from above, and a thunderous crash filled the tunnel with deafening vibrations. Bits of flying splinters struck him. A huge block of stone, he knew from the sound, dropped on the spot he had just quitted. An instant slower thought or action, and it would have crushed him like an ant. Conan fell back. Somewhere on the other side of that metal door Muriela was a captive, if she still lived. But he could not pass that door and if he remained in the tunnel another block might fall, and he might not be so lucky. It would do the girl no good for him to be crushed into a purple pulp. He could not continue his search in that direction. He must get above ground and look for some other avenue of approach. He turned and hurried toward the stair, sighing as he emerged into comparative radiance. And as he set foot on the first step, the light was blotted out, and above him the marble door rushed shut with a resounding reverberation. Something like panic seized the Cimmerian, then trapped in that black tunnel, and he wheeled on the stair, lifting his sword and glaring murderously into the darkness behind him, expecting a rush of ghoulish assailants. But there was no sound or movement down the tunnel. Did the men beyond the door, if they were men, believe that he had been disposed of by the fall of the stone from the roof, which had undoubtedly been released by some sort of machinery? Then why had the door been shut above him? Abandoning speculation, Conan groped his way up the steps, his skin crawling in anticipation of a knife in his back at every stride, yearning to drown his semi-panic in a barbarous burst of bloodletting. He thrust against the door at the top, and cursed soulfully to find that it did not give to his efforts. Then, as he lifted his sword with his right hand to hew at the marble, his groping left encountered a metal bolt that evidently slipped into place at the closing of the door. In an instant he had drawn this bolt, and then the door gave to his shove. He bounded into the chamber like a slit-eyed, snarling incarnation of fury, furiously desirous to come to grips with whatever enemy was hounding him. The dagger was gone from the floor. 
The chamber was empty, and so was the dais. Yelaya had again vanished. By Krom, muttered the Cimmerian, is she alive after all? He strode out into the throne room, baffled, and then, struck by a sudden thought, stepped behind the throne and peered into the alcove. There was blood on the smooth marble where he had cast down the senseless body of Warunga. That was all. The black man had vanished as completely as Yelaya. Chapter 4 The Teeth of Gwalor Baffled wrath confused the brain of Conan the Cimmerian. He knew no more how to go about searching for Muriela than he had known how to go about searching for the Teeth of Gwalor. Only one thought occurred to him, to follow the priests. Perhaps at the hiding-place of the treasure some clue would be revealed to him. It was a slim chance, but better than wandering about aimlessly. As he hurried through the great shadowy hall that led to the portico, he half expected the lurking shades to come to life behind him with rending fangs and talons. But only the beat of his own rapid heart accompanied him into the moonlight that dappled the shimmering marble. At the foot of the wide steps he cast about in the bright moonlight for some sign to show him the direction he must go, and he found it. Petals scattered on the sward told where an arm or garment had brushed against a blossom-laden branch. Grass had been pressed down under heavy feet. Conan, who had tracked wolves in his native hills, found no insurmountable difficulty in following the trail of the Kishani priests. It led away from the palace, through masses of exotic-scented shrubbery, where great pale blossoms spread their shimmering petals through verdant, tangled bushes that showered blooms at the touch, until he came at last to a great mass of rock that jutted like a titan's castle out from the cliffs at a point closest to the palace, which, however, was almost hidden from view by vine-interlaced trees. Evidently that babbling priest in Kashia had been mistaken when he said that the teeth were hidden in the palace. This trail had led him away from the place where Muriela had disappeared, but a belief was growing in Conan that each part of the valley was connected with that palace by subterranean passages. Crouching in the deep velvet-black shadows of the bushes, he scrutinized the great jut of rock which stood out in bold relief in the moonlight. It was covered with strange, grotesque carvings depicting men and animals and half-bestial creatures that might have been gods or devils. The style of art differed so strikingly from that of the rest of the valley that Conan wondered if it did not represent a different era and race and was itself a relic of an age lost and forgotten at whatever immeasurably distant date the people of Alcminon had found and entered the haunted valley. A great door stood open in the sheer curtain of the cliff, and a gigantic dragon-head was carved about it, so that the open door was like the dragon's gaping mouth. The door itself was of carven bronze and looked to weigh several tons. There was no lock that he could see, but a series of bolts showing along the edge of the massive portal as it stood open, 
told him that there was some system of locking and unlocking, a system doubtless known only to the priests of Kishan. The trail showed that Gorulga and his henchmen had gone through that door, but Conan hesitated. To wait until they emerged would probably mean to see the door locked in his face, and he might not be able to solve the mystery of its unlocking. On the other hand, if he followed them in, they might emerge and lock him in the cavern. Throwing caution to the winds, he glided silently through the great portal. Somewhere in the cavern were the priests, the teeth of Gwalur, and perhaps a clue to the fate of Muriela. Personal risks had never yet deterred the Cimmerian from any purpose. Moonlight illumined for a few yards the wide tunnel in which he found himself. Somewhere ahead of him he saw a faint glow and heard the echo of a weird chanting. The priests were not so far ahead of him as he had thought. The tunnel debouched into a wide room before the moonlight played out, an empty cavern of no great dimensions, but with a lofty vaulted roof, glowing with a phosphorescent incrustation, which, as Conan knew, was a common phenomenon in that part of the world. It made a ghostly half-light, in which he was able to see a bestial image squatting on a shrine and the black mouths of six or seven tunnels leading off from the chamber. Down the widest of these, the one directly behind the squat image, which looked toward the outer opening, he caught the gleam of torches wavering, whereas the phosphorescent glow was fixed, and heard the chanting increase in volume. Down it he went recklessly, and presently peered into a larger cavern than the one he had just left. There was no phosphorus here, but the light of the torches fell on a larger altar, and a more obscene and repulsive god squatting toad-like upon it. Before this repugnant deity, Gorulga and his ten acolytes knelt and beat their heads upon the ground, while chanting monotonously. Conan realized why their progress had been so slow. Evidently approaching the secret crypt of the teeth was a complicated and elaborate ritual. He was fidgeting in nervous impatience before the chanting and bowing were over, but presently they rose and passed into the tunnel which opened behind the idol. Their torches bobbed away into the nighted vault, and he followed swiftly. Not much danger of being discovered, he glided along the shadows like a creature of the night, and the black priests were completely engrossed in their ceremonial mummery. Apparently they had not even noticed the absence of Warunga. Emerging into a cavern of huge proportions, about whose upward-curving walls gallery-like ledges marched in tiers, they began their worship anew before an altar which was larger and a god which was more disgusting than any encountered thus far. Conan crouched in the black mouth of the tunnel, staring at the walls reflecting the lurid glow of the torches. He saw a carven stone stair winding up from tier to tier of the galleries. The roof was lost in darkness. He started violently, and the chanting broke off as the kneeling blacks flung up their heads. An inhuman voice boomed out high above them. They froze on their knees. 
their faces turned upward with a ghastly blue hue in the sudden glare of a weird light that burst blindingly up near the lofty roof, and then burned with a throbbing glow. That glare lighted a gallery, and a cry went up from the high priest, echoed shudderingly by his acolytes. In the flash there had been briefly disclosed to them a slim white figure standing upright in a sheen of silk and a glint of jewel-crusted gold. Then the blaze smoldered to a throbbing, pulsing luminosity, in which nothing was distinct, and that slim shape was but a shimmering blue of ivory. "'Yelaya!' screamed Gorulga, his brown features ashen. "'Why have you followed us? What is your pleasure?' That weird, unhuman voice rolled down from the roof, re-echoing under that arching vault that magnified and altered it beyond recognition. "'Woe to the unbelievers! Woe to the false children of Kashia! Doom to them which deny their deity!' A cry of horror went up from the priests. Garulga looked like a shocked vulture in the glare of the torches. "'I do not understand,' he stammered. "'We are faithful. In the chamber of the oracle you told us—' "'Do not heed what you heard in the chamber of the oracle,' rolled that terrible voice, multiplied until it was as though a myriad voices thundered and muttered the same warning. "'Beware of false prophets and false gods.' A demon in my guise spoke to you in the palace, giving false prophecy. Now hearken and obey, for only I am the true goddess, and I give you one chance to save yourselves from doom. Take the teeth of Gwalur from the crypt, where they were placed so long ago. Alcminon is no longer holy, because it has been desecrated by blasphemers. Give the teeth of Gwalur into the hands of Tutmerkri, the Stygian, to place in the sanctuary of Dragon and Derkito. Only this can save Kishan from the doom the demons of the night have plotted. Take the teeth of Gwalur and go. Return instantly to Kishia. There give the jewels to Thutmerkri and seize the foreign devil Conan and flay him alive in the great square. There was no hesitation in obeying. Chattering with fear, the priests scrambled up and ran for the door that opened behind the bestial god. Gorulga led the flight. They jammed briefly in the doorway, yelping as wildly waving torches touched squirming black bodies. They plunged through, and the patter of their speeding feet dwindled down the tunnel. Conan did not follow. 
He was consumed with a furious desire to learn the truth of this fantastic affair. Was that indeed Yelaya, as the cold sweat on the backs of his hands told him? Or was it that little hussy Muriella turned traitorous after all? If it was— Before the last torch had vanished down the black tunnel, he was bounding vengefully up the stone stair. The blue glow was dying down, but he could still make out that the ivory figure stood motionless on the gallery. His blood ran cold as he approached it, but he did not hesitate. He came on with his sword lifted and towered like a threat of death over the inscrutable shape. Yelaya, he snarled, dead as she's been for a thousand years. Ha! From the dark mouth of a tunnel behind him, a dark form lunged, but the sudden deadly rush of unshod feet had reached the Cimmerian's quick ears. He whirled like a cat and dodged the blow aimed murderously at his back. As the gleaming steel in the dark hand hissed past him, he struck back with the fury of a roused python, and the long straight blade impaled his assailant and stood out a foot and a half between his shoulders. So! Conan tore his sword free as the victim sagged to the floor, gasping and gurgling. The man writhed briefly and stiffened. In the dying light Conan saw a black body and ebon countenance, hideous in the blue glare. He had killed Warunga. Conan turned from the corpse to the goddess. Thongs about her knees and breast held her upright against a stone pillar, and her thick hair fastened to the column held her head up. At a few yards' distance these bonds were not visible in the uncertain light. "'He must have come to after I descended into the tunnel,' muttered Conan. "'He must have suspected I was down there. So he pulled out the dagger.' Conan stooped and wrenched the identical weapon from the stiffened fingers, glanced at it, and replaced it in his own girdle, and shut the door. Then he took Yelaya to befool his brother idiots.' That was he shouting a while ago. You couldn't recognize his voice under this echoing roof. And that bursting blue flame, I thought it looked familiar. It's a trick of the Stygian priests. But Mercury must have given some of it to Guarunga. He could easily have reached this cavern ahead of his companions. Evidently familiar with the plan of the caverns by hearsay or by maps handed down in the priestcraft, he had entered the cave after the others, carrying the goddess, followed a circuitous route through the tunnels and chambers, and ensconced himself and his burden on the balcony while Gorulga and the other acolytes were engaged in their endless rituals. The blue glare had faded, but now Conan was aware of another glow, emanating from the mouth of one of the corridors that opened on the ledge. Somewhere, down that corridor, there was another field of phosphorus, for he recognized the faint, steady radiance. The corridor led in the direction the priests had taken, and he decided to follow it, rather than descend into the darkness of the great cavern below. Doubtless it connected with another gallery in some other chamber, which might be the destination of the priests. He hurried down it the illumination growing stronger as he advanced, 
until he could make out the floor and the walls of the tunnel. Ahead of him and below he could hear the priests chanting again. Abruptly a doorway in the left-hand wall was limed in the phosphorus glow, and to his ears came the sound of soft, hysterical sobbing. He wheeled and glared through the door. He was looking again into a chamber hewn out of solid rock, not a natural cavern like the others. The domed roof shone with the phosphorus light, and the walls were almost covered with the arabesques of beaten gold. Near the farther wall on a granite throne, staring forever toward the arched doorway, sat the monstrous and obscene Petiar, the god of the Polistim, wrought in brass, with his exaggerated attributes reflecting the grossness of his cult. And in his lap sprawled a limp, white figure. "'Well, I'll be damned,' muttered Conan. He glanced suspiciously about the chamber, seeing no other entrance or evidence of occupation, and then advanced noiselessly and looked down at the girl, whose slim shoulders shook with sobs of abject misery. Her face sunk in her arms. From thick bands of gold on the idol's arms, slim gold chains ran to the smaller bands on her wrists. He laid a hand on her naked shoulder, and she started convulsively, shrieked, and twisted her tear-stained face toward him. Conan! She made a spasmodic effort to go into the usual clinch, but the chains hindered her. He cut through the soft gold as close to her wrists as he could, grunting, "'You'll have to wear these bracelets until I can find a chisel or a file. Let go of me, damn it! You actresses are too damned emotional. What happened to you, anyway?' "'When I went back into the oracle chamber,' she whimpered, "'I saw the goddess lying on the dais as I'd first seen her. I called out to you and started to run to the door. Then something grabbed me from behind.' It clapped a hand over my mouth and carried me through a panel in the wall and down some steps and along a dark hall. I didn't see what it was that had hold of me until we passed through a big metal door and came into a tunnel whose roof was alight like this chamber. Oh, I nearly fainted when I saw. They are not humans. They are gray, hairy devils that walk like men and speak a gibberish no human could understand. They stood there and seemed to be waiting, and once I thought I heard somebody trying the door. Then one of the things pulled a metal lever in the wall, and something crashed on the other side of the door. Then they carried me on and on through winding tunnels and up stone stairways into this chamber where they chained me on the knees of this abominable idol, and then they went away. Oh, Conan, what are they? Servants of Beat Yakin, he grunted. I found a manuscript that told me a number of things, and then stumbled upon some frescoes that told me the rest. Beat Yakin was a Pelishtim, who wandered into the valley with his servants after the people of Alcminon had deserted it. He found the body of Princess Yelaya, and discovered that the priests returned from time to time to make offerings to her, for even then she was worshipped as a goddess. He made an oracle of her, and he was the voice of the oracle. 
speaking from a niche he cut in the wall behind the ivory dais. The priests never suspected, never saw him or his servants, for they always hid themselves when the men came. Beat Yakin lived and died here without ever being discovered by the priests. Crom knows how long he dwelt here, but it must have been for centuries. The wise men of the Pelishtim know how to increase the span of their lives for hundreds of years. I've seen some of them myself. Why he lived here alone, and why he played the part of an oracle, no ordinary human can guess. But I believe the oracle part was to keep the city inviolate and sacred, so he could remain undisturbed. He ate the food the priests brought as an offering to Yilaya, and his servants ate other things. I've always known there was a subterranean river flowing away from the lake where the people of the Puntish Highlands throw their dead. That river runs under this palace. They have ladders hung over the water where they can hang and fish for the corpses that come floating through. Beat Yakin recorded everything on parchment and painted walls. But he died at last, and his servants mummified him according to instructions he gave them before his death, and stuck him in a cave in the cliffs. The rest is easy to guess. His servants, who were even more nearly immortal than he, kept on dwelling here, but the next time a high priest came to consult the oracle, not having a master to restrain them, they tore him to pieces. So since then, until Gorulga, nobody came to talk to the oracle. It's obvious they've been renewing the garments and ornaments of the goddess, as they'd seen Bityakin do. Doubtless there's a sealed chamber somewhere where the silks are kept from decay. They clothed the goddess and brought her back to the oracle room after Zargheba had stolen her, and, by the way, they took off Zargheba's head and hung it in a thicket. She shivered, yet at the same time breathed a sigh of relief. He'll never whip me again. Not this side of hell, agreed Conan. But come on. Gwarunga ruined my chances with his stolen goddess. I'm going to follow the priests and take my chance of stealing the loot from them after they get it. But you stay close to me. I can't spend all my time looking for you. But the servants of Bityakin, she whispered fearfully. We'll have to take our chance, he grunted. I don't know what's in their minds. But so far they haven't shown any disposition to come out and fight in the open. Come on. Taking her wrist, he led her out of the chamber and down the corridor. As they advanced, they heard the chanting of the priests mingling with the sound of the low, sullen rushing of waters. The light grew stronger above them as they emerged on a high-pitched gallery of a great cavern and looked down on a scene weird and fantastic. Above them gleamed the phosphorescent roof. A hundred feet below them stretched the smooth floor of the cavern. On the far side this floor was cut by a deep, narrow stream brimming its rocky channel. Rushing out of impenetrable gloom, it swirled across the cavern and was lost again in darkness. The visible surface reflected the radiance above. 
The dark seething waters glinted as if flecked with living jewels, frosty blue, lurid red, shimmering green, and ever-changing iridescence. Conan and his companion stood upon one of the gallery-like ledges that banded the curve of a lofty wall, and from this ledge a natural bridge of stone soared in a breathtaking arch over the vast gulf of the cavern to join a much smaller ledge on the opposite side across the river. Ten feet below it another broader arch spanned the cave. At either end a carven stair joined the extremities of these flying arches. Conan's gaze, following the curve of the arch that swept away from the ledge on which they stood, caught a glint of light that was not the lurid phosphorus of the cavern. On that small ledge opposite them there was an opening in the cave wall through which stars were glinting. But his full attention was drawn to the scene beneath them. The priests had reached their destination. There, in a sweeping angle of the cavern wall, stood a stone altar, but there was no idol upon it. Whether there was one behind it, Conan could not ascertain, because some trick of the light or the sweep of the wall left the space behind the altar in total darkness. The priests had stuck their torches into holes in the stone floor, forming a semicircle of fire in front of the altar at a distance of several yards. Then the priests themselves formed a semicircle inside the crescent of torches, and Garulga, after lifting his arms aloft in invocation, bent to the altar and laid hands on it. It lifted and tilted backward on its hinder edge, like the lid of a chest, revealing a small crypt. Extending a long arm into the recess, Garulga brought up a small brass chest. Lowering the altar back into place, he set the chest on it and threw back the lid. To the eager watchers on the high gallery, it seemed as if the action had released a blaze of living fire which throbbed and quivered about the opened chest. Conan's heart leaped, and his hand caught at his hilt. The teeth of Gwalar at last! The treasure that would make its possessor the richest man in the world! His breath came fast between his clenched teeth. Then he was suddenly aware that a new element had entered into the light of the torches and of the phosphorescent roof, rendering both void. Darkness stole around the altar, except for that glowing spot of evil radiance cast by the teeth of Gwalor, and that grew and grew. The blacks froze into basaltic statues, their shadows streaming grotesquely and gigantically out behind them. The altar was laved in the glow now, and the astounded features of Gorulga stood out in sharp relief. Then the mysterious space behind the altar swam into the widening illumination, and slowly, with the crawling light, figures became visible, like shapes growing out of the night and silence. At first they seemed like gray stone statues, those motionless shapes hairy, man-like, yet hideously human. But their eyes were alive, cold sparks of gray icy fire. 
and as the weird glow lit their bestial countenances, Garulga screamed and fell backwards, throwing up his long arms in a gesture of frenzied horror. But a longer arm shot across the altar, and a misshapen hand locked on his throat. Screaming and fighting, the high priest was dragged back across the altar. A hammer-like fist smashed down, and Garulga's cries were stilled. Limp and broken, he sagged across the altar, his brains oozing from his crushed skull. And then the servants of Bit Yakin surged like a bursting flood from hell on the black priests, who stood like horror-blasted images. Then there was slaughter, grim and appalling. Conan saw black bodies tossed like chaff in the inhuman hands of the slayers, against whose horrible strength and agility the daggers and swords of the priests were ineffective. He saw men lifted bodily and their heads cracked open against the stone altar. He saw a flaming torch, grasped in a monstrous hand, thrust inexorably down the gullet of an agonized wretch who writhed in vain against the arms that pinioned him. He saw a man torn in two pieces, as one might tear a chicken, and the bloody fragments hurled clear across the cavern. The massacre was as short and devastating as the rush of a hurricane. In a burst of red abysmal ferocity it was over, except for one wretch who fled, screaming back the way the priests had come, pursued by a swarm of blood-dabbed shapes of horror which reached out their red-smeared hands for him. Fugitive and pursuers vanished down the black tunnel, and the screams of the human came back dwindling and confused by the distance. Muriela was on her knees, clutching Conan's legs, her face pressed against his knee and her eyes tightly shut. She was a quaking, quivering mold of abject terror. But Conan was galvanized. A quick glance across at the aperture where the stars shone, a glance down at the chest that still blazed open on the blood-smeared altar, and he saw and seized the desperate gamble. "'I'm going after that chest,' he grated. "'Stay here.' "'Oh, Mithra, no!' In an agony of fright she fell to the floor and caught at his sandals. "'Don't, don't, don't leave me!' "'Lie still and keep your mouth shut,' he snapped disengaging himself from her frantic clasp. He disregarded the torturous stare. He dropped from ledge to ledge with reckless haste. There was no sign of the monsters as his feet hit the floor. A few of the torches still flared in their sockets, the phosphorescent glow throbbed and quivered, and the river flowed with an almost articulate muttering, scintillating with undreamed radiances. The glow that had heralded the appearance of the servants had vanished with them. Only the light of the jewels in the brass chest shimmered and quivered. He snatched the chest, noting its contents in one lustful glance. Strange, curiously shaped stones that burned with an icy, non-terrestrial fire. He slammed the lid, thrust the chest under his arm, and ran back up the steps. 
he had no desire to encounter the hellish servants of Beit Yakin. His glimpse of them in action had dispelled any illusion concerning their fighting ability. Why had they waited so long before striking at the invaders he was unable to say? What human could guess the motives or thoughts of these monstrosities? That they were possessed of craft and intelligence equal to humanity had been demonstrated, and there, on the cavern floor, lay crimson proof of their bestial ferocity. The Corinthian girl still cowered on the gallery where he had left her. He caught her wrist and yanked her to her feast, grunting, "'I guess it's time to go.' Too bemused with terror to be fully aware of what was going on, the girl suffered herself to be led across the dizzy span. It was not until they were poised over the rushing water that she looked down, voiced a startled yelp, and would have fallen but for Conan's massive arm about her. Growling an objurgation in her ear, he snatched her up under his free arm, and swept her in a flutter of limply waving arms and legs across the arch and into the aperture that opened at the other end. Without bothering to set her on her feet, he hurried through the short tunnel into which this aperture opened. An instant later they emerged upon a narrow ledge on the outer side of the cliffs that circled the valley. Less than a hundred feet below them the jungle waved in the starlight. Looking down, Conan vented a gusty sigh of relief. He believed that he could negotiate the descent, even though burdened with the jewels and the girl, although he doubted if even he, unburdened, could have ascended at that spot. He set the chest, still smeared with Gorulga's blood, and clotted with his brains on the ledge, and was about to remove his girdle in order to tie the box to his back, when he was galvanized by a sound behind him, a sound sinister and unmistakable. "'Stay there!' he snapped at the bewildered Corinthian girl. "'Don't move!' And, drawing his sword, he glided into the tunnel, glaring back into the cavern. Halfway across the upper span he saw a gray deformed shape. One of the servants of Bit-Yakin was on his trail." There was no doubt that the brute had seen them and was following them. Conan did not hesitate. It might be easier to defend the mouth of the tunnel, but this fight must be finished quickly before the other servants could return. He ran out on the span, straight toward the oncoming monster. It was no ape, neither was it a man. It was some shambling horror spawned in the mysterious, nameless jungles of the South, where strange life teemed in the reeking rot without the dominance of man, and drums thundered in temples that had never known the tread of a human foot. How the ancient Pelishtim had gained lordship over them, and with it eternal exile from humanity, was a foul riddle about which Conan did not care to speculate even if he had had opportunity. Man and monster, they met at the highest arch of the span, where a hundred feet below rushed the furious black water. As the monstrous shape with its leprous gray body and the features of a craven, unhuman idol loomed over him, Conan struck as a wounded tiger strikes, 
with every ounce of thew and fury behind the blow. That stroke would have sheared a human body asunder, but the bones of the servant of Bityakin were like tempered steel. Yet even tempered steel could not wholly have withstood that furious stroke. Ribs and shoulder bone parted, and blood spouted from the great gash. There was no time for a second stroke. Before the Cimmerian could lift his blade again or spring clear, the sweep of a giant arm knocked him from the span as a fly is flicked from a wall. As he plunged downward, the rush of the river was like a knell in his ears, but his twisted body fell halfway across the lower arch. He wavered there precariously for one chilling instant, then his clutching fingers hooked over the farther edge, and he scrambled to safety, his sword still in his other hand. As he sprang up he saw the monster spurting blood hideously, rush toward the cliff edge of the bridge, obviously intending to descend the stair that connected the arches and renew the feud. At the very ledge the brute paused in mid-flight, and Conan saw it too. Muriela, with the jewel chest under her arm, stood staring wildly in the mouth of the tunnel. With a triumphant bellow the monster scooped her up under one arm, snatched the jewel chest with the other hand as she dropped it, and, turning, lumbered back across the bridge. Conan cursed with passion and ran for the other side also. He doubted if he could climb the stair to the higher arch in time to catch the brute before it could plunge into the labyrinth of tunnels on the other side. But the monster was slowing, like clockwork running down. Blood gushed from that terrible gash in his breast, and he lurched drunkenly from side to side. Suddenly he stumbled, reeled, and toppled sidewise, pitched headlong from the arch, and hurtled downward. Girl and jewel-chest fell from his nerveless hands, and Muriela's scream rang terribly above the snarl of the water below. Conan was almost under the spot from which the creature had fallen. The monster struck the lower arch glancingly and shot off, but the writhing figure of the girl struck and clung, and the chest hit the edge of the span near her. One falling object struck on one side of Conan and one on the other. Either was within arm's length. For the fraction of a split second the chest teetered on the edge of the bridge, and Muriela clung by one arm, her face turned desperately toward Conan. Her eyes dilated with the fear of death, and her lips parted in a haunting cry of despair. Conan did not hesitate, nor did he even glance toward the chest that held the wealth of an epoch. With a quickness that would have shamed the spring of a hungry jaguar, he swooped, grasped the girl's arm just as her fingers slipped from the smooth stone, and snatched her up on the span with one explosive heave. The chest toppled on over and struck the water ninety feet below, where the body of the servant of Bit Yakin had already vanished. A splash, a jetting flash of foam, marked where the teeth of Gwalor disappeared forever from the sight of the man. Conan scarcely wasted a downward glance. He darted across the span and ran up the cliff stair like a cat, 
carrying the limp girl as if she had been an infant. A hideous ululation caused him to glance over his shoulder as he reached the higher arch, to see the other servants streaming back into the cavern below, blood dripping from their barred fangs. They raced up the stair that wound from tier to tier, roaring vengefully, but he slung the girl unceremoniously over his shoulder, dashed through the tunnel, and went down the cliffs like an ape himself, dropping and springing from hold to hold with breakneck recklessness. When the fierce countenances looked over the ledge of the aperture, it was to see the Cimmerian and the girl disappearing into the forest that surrounded the cliffs. "'Well,' said Conan, setting the girl on her feet within the sheltering screen of branches, "'we can take our time now. I don't think those brutes will follow us outside the valley. Anyway, I've got a horse tied at a waterhole close by, if the lions haven't eaten him. Crom's devils! What are you crying about now?' She covered her tear-stained face with her hands, and her slim shoulders shook with sobs. Uh, I lost the jewels for you, she wailed miserably. It was my fault. If I'd obeyed you and stayed out on the ledge, that brute would never have seen me. You should have caught the gems and let me drown. Yes, I suppose I should, he agreed. But forget it. Never worry about what's past. And stop crying, will you? That's better. Come on. You mean you're going to keep me? Take me with you? She asked hopefully. What else do you suppose I'd do with you? He ran an approving glance over her figure and grinned at the torn skirt, which revealed a generous expanse of tempting ivory-tinted curves. I can use an actress like you. There's no use going back to Kashia. There's nothing in Kashan now that I want. We'll go to Punt. The people of Punt worship an ivory woman, and they wash gold out of the rivers in wicker baskets. I'll tell them that Kishan is intriguing with Tadmerkri to enslave them, which is true, and that the gods have sent me to protect them, for about a house full of gold. If I can manage to smuggle you into their temple to exchange places with their ivory goddess, we'll skin them out of their jaw-teeth before we get through with them. End of Jewels of Gwalor by Robert E. Howard This book recorded by Phil Chenevere in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, March of 2013 Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Trish. Hi, I'm Alex. And we're going to talk about Jewels of Gwalur by Robert E. Howard, first published in Weird Tales, uh, March, was it 1937? 1935. 35? 35. 35? Wow. <laughs> You're right. I, I, I somehow thought it was, uh, posthumous, but I guess it wasn't. Um, also published under the title The Servants of Bit Yakin. Also published under, I think, Fangs of Gwalur, sort of. Teeth. Say again? Teeth of Gwalur. Teeth of Gwalur, yeah. Um, I think, I think, uh, Farnsworth Wright probably had the best title for it, Jewels of Gwalur. It's, it sounds, it sounds cool. The J and the, G, the GW and the. And Gwilur. it doesn't give away the ending. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, this, uh, but the the other reason not to call it uh, the servants of Bitkakini is because it's it's Conan actually says that, <laughs> you know, and that kind of gives it away. What? What's going uh, yeah, I guess so. I I have no problem with the giveaway. I I just think like what is the uh, if you say the teeth of Gwilar, um that makes you think there's a monster, right? Starting yep. starting him. Mm-hmm. Well, the jewels of Gwilar, Oh, he's after some some jewels, but um. Uh, my first analysis on this, other than it's an awesome story, <laughs> um, and then we can just hang up the podcast and be finished with it, um, is that uh, it's it's a really cool political intrigue story. Um, if you look at it like a real politic, uh, what country wants to invade what country for what resources? I was thinking like, uh, it's obviously it's set in the Hyborian Africa, but it's like... Uh, First, you get Russia to invade Afghanistan, and the reason they're going <laughs> there is for political reasons and blah, blah, blah. But underneath it, they also want to secure this and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, the Americans are, like, trying to subvert that. And then now the Americans have been in there for 20 years, right? And it's like, what What are they all doing? They want the minerals, right? <laughs> it's all about getting the minerals. And uh, Conan is surprised at one point in this story that there's a priest who actually believes in the bullshit yeah, that, that, is, that is his religion, like, right? Um, it's like, oh, we're going in there as liberators. Like, nobody believes that. <laughs> Most of the people going in are like, I don't know what we're doing here, but we are getting paid. Uh, the mercenaries, etc. Um, but that's sort of Conan's attitude, right? Is that, um, he's, that's, that's the thing that surprises him. Not that there's, you know, uh, in, human ape ghouls living in the basement. <laughs> it's that there's a guy who actually believes this shit. What an idiot. Um, so it's kind of, uh, it's kind of cool in that respect. There's not a lot of sword fights as I think a few people pointed out. It's less, uh, a lot less sorcery than like, I don't think there's any actual magic in the whole story. Right. Other than maybe the preserved body. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that he, he, I, I sort of thought of him as a lich, you know, like he, he used magic to stay alive a lot longer than he normally would have been able to. Um, but I, why, why didn't we just expect the, uh, the, the servants of Bityakin, the ghoul men? I keep thinking of them as ghouls, um, like, or Lovecraftian. chuds. Well, Lovecraftian ghouls in that they literally are eating the dead bodies in the sewer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why aren't they just breeding? But no, he says that they they just have some very preserved lives. They live a long time, and they they what do they what did what did Bit Yakin even want to do in there? He like seemed to just take over the place and then get food delivered by the priests. Is like kind of a shitty uh, a shitty life. I don't know. This is definitely one of those stories with a lot of implied backstory that Mm. is never really fleshed out. I love that. Howard is just putting in a lot of broad strokes. Like, there's some stuff in the background. It doesn't really matter. Let's get to the action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Conan doesn't care. He doesn't even read that scroll until he's, like, halfway (laughs) into the... He just shoves it in his belt and keeps going, right? But but, but I, 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 I like how this story undercuts the interpretation 
by the vast public who doesn't understand Conan, that Conan is just an illiterate barbarian who doesn't know anything. You know, Conan knows a bunch of languages and knows his shit. He right. just usually doesn't care, <laughs> but he knows his shit, which is which is which 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 grounds him nicely. Makes him more than just a dumb barbarian sword swinger, which I appreciate. He even says that in the text. Right? Like he mm-hmm. opens the scroll up and he's like, a lot of people were surprised <laughs> at Conan's grasp of languages because right. it was really good. Yeah, uh, and and uh, then he gets the uh, the mural, which I thought was very, you know, a bit, Yakin seems kind of self-obsessed. <laughs> he's writing his journal. He's, he's uh, having the painting up on the wall showing his story. And 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 i was thinking there's another way of looking at it too cuz looking back at it you say it's really interesting that conan just happened to come across the only mummy on the entire uh curtain of granite or whatever it is that goes all the way around the, this this uh plateau yeah yeah it's it's not it's really interesting the geography of it or the geology of it and, but and, and and that's really in contrast to our story that we discussed last week the star hunter where we couldn't we, we couldn't get a geographical reference to save our lives mm-hmm. this is full of no oh, he's really good at this. and and terrain and i i felt i really was there in a way that our previous story really really frustrated me mm-hmm. yes so I I just want to point out that this is kind of like he, I I think it's really well done. There's a couple of adaptations. I I hope you guys got a chance to look at comic book adaptations. Um, but Conan, we we start with Conan climbing up the side of the cliff. He's actually halfway up, right, and he's moving pretty fast. And then he gets uh quite near the top. I don't know, twenty feet from the top. And then oh, there's a little niche there, a little cave inside. There's a mummy. The mummy's holding a scroll. He grabs a scroll. Uh, or parchment or whatever, and and he just keeps going. He goes down the other side. It takes a moment to look at and see what's on the inside, and it's it's basically what's on the outside, except it's the inside of the donut, and the cliffs are slightly less uh, sheer, right? Actually, what I like best about that lead-in is that there's supposed to be a secret entrance to the valley, mm-hmm. but he doesn't even bother with that. Nah, he just he's a hill climber. Cliffs. <laughs> right, no problem with him. But the, the funny part is, he just picked, you know, the wall that's near. Like he didn't find the easiest place to climb, right? He just picked the nearest thing. Now, what I Straight I really, one. yeah, and he just started climbing, and he just happened. And if think if you think about it afterwards, he just happened to find the only mummy on this entire like I don't know twenty kilometer <laughs> a palisade. That's oh, that's a coincidence. So the way my mind works, I go back to my uh, monkey's paw theory. Uh, I don't know if uh, Paul, were you on the monkey's paw show? I was not. Okay. So tell us your monkey's paw theory. I love I love my monkey's paw theory. So though, if you guys remember the monkey's paw, uh, W.W. Jacobs, um, uh, mm-hmm. there's this old guy who used to want to go adventuring. And he gets a return visit at a pub uh, from a friend who went off to India and had adventures. And uh, he invites the guy over to his house uh, for dinner, a free meal, right? And then the guy comes in and he says, now you mentioned something interesting to me at the bar and I want you to tell me and my family about it. And he makes this elaborate show of uh, pulling out a monkey's paw and then telling the story of the monkey's paw. And then he throws it in the fire. Um, and he says, don't you do anything with this. 
<laughs> it's terrible. And then they saw, oh, we want to pay you for it. And he's like, no, 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 no. And eventually they do pay him for it. And then he disappears from the story. And the rest of the story is, uh, the son goes off to work and gets mangled in a, in a factory accident, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, uh, the family makes a couple of wishes. One of them is that the son be brought back to life and they hear a knocking at the door. And then that's his zombie. And the other wish, the final wish is that, uh, the zombie go away. And so when they oh, open wait, the door, I was on this, I was on this episode. It was, it was March 2019. Right. So he opens the door and there's nobody there. So my, my monkey's paw theory is that this guy, uh, from India came ac- across a great con in India. And now he has like a, a whole sea chest full of monkey's paws where he goes to around to bars and starts, you know, starts in on the spiel that intrigues people and then <laughs> sells them. And it makes a lot more sense, uh, to have this, uh, <laughs> this story be like, if we're interpreting it as a reality based story rather than the gods interfering in the world or black magic is real, like, I don't believe in that shit. So that's how I would interpret it. Um, that he's just going around and, and, and it's the way you focus the story that tells you what the reality is. So I, I really like thinking about, uh, the parallel to Conan, who's in this story. What's what's his name? Um, the Stygian guy. Yeah, the Stygian dude who you know Conan knows him of old, and I'm like, was he Tutmekri? Tutmekri, Tutmekri, right? So I'm thinking, does Conan know him of old? Was he in a previous story? I don't remember. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The important part. It just states story, that he, knew he knows him, him of old. But right. I think. I right. Don't remember. I don't think he actually appears in any absolutely Conan story, and he doesn't, he doesn't have either. to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just his head. <laughs> he makes a, a head appearance. But his his plan is essentially that of Conan's, except he's a little more elaborate. And uh, he's unfortunately showing up uh, and not knowing of, you know, what Conan uh, happens to sneak around a little better. So he doesn't end with his head. Conan doesn't end with his head hanging from a tree, right? Um, but the thing is, is it makes me think that no matter where you crawl up, on the side of this, this, uh, palisade of stone surrounding this, uh, jeweled fortress, right? That there's mummies at the top of every, every part of it. <laughs> and they're all different guys. Now, obviously that's not a very good explanation, but it fits with the kind of game that Howard is playing, which is this is a con game, right? This is a con game story. Everybody's mm-hmm. conning everybody and there's only one guy. Who well, and I guess the servants of Bit Yakin themselves, because even Bit Yakin was doing the conning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, everybody's in on this on some sort of scam, and at the end, uh, Conan says to how do we pronounce her name? Murella, Murelia? I don't know. Anyway, she he says you're a great actress, uh, and the punts those guys, they have a they have a thing for an ivory goddess too. I'm going to slip you into. <laughs> their temple middle of the night and you're going to tell them uh that conan needs to be given a house full of gold just like uh it, it's a almost a direct callback to um to uh the conquistadors right going into mexico oh yeah, yeah i was no, trying no, to no, think no, of no, any no, actual uh, you know african tribes that did worship white 
women, and I can't think of anything. I think it's just a white fantasy. H. Rider Haggard is what it is, right? Conquistadors, the locals thought that they were gods because they rode on horses, and that was similar to one of their other things. And that's kind of a con on us as well. We're sort of getting uh, a nice story. Uh, and but th- they did ask for a house full of gold. And yeah, that, that's that. That was um, that was Pizarro and the Inca. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's yeah. a, the, they're all playing the same game all over North and yeah. South America, and and the natives say, "Oh, it's no, we don't have gold in this village, but keep going, next village over, right? The seven cities of gold." Um, it's 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 a fun. It's uh, I just like what Robert E. Howard has done here. Is he's taking taking uh, the real politic, the kind of icky uh, international, uh, you know, you work for us and we'll help you get revenge on your enemies and blah blah blah, and he he just stuck a, a grifter in the middle of it, and his name is Conan, <laughs> who who doesn't doesn't believe any of the stuff he's he's saying, other than that's cool. And then at the end, when we get this um, the choice between the you know becoming the richest man on the planet and uh, hanging out with a sexy girl for a while. He's like, of course I'm going to hang out with a sexy girl. You know, yeah, it's too bad. I should, probably should have let the, let the, let you go and grab the jewels, just like you said, but I didn't. Oh, well, I can make use of you. Right. So there's always another great treasure story. to be gotten. Yeah. That's he would have the, probably just blown the treasure anyway. Yeah. Wine, women, and song. Yeah, well, and that's the whole. That's all it's for, right? I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with yeah, that? And Conan, as a Conan as a king and rich, is unhappy. I mean, he has mm-hmm. the fun when he's trying to get the things, not when he has the things. It's the right. getting, not the having, for Conan. So Absolutely. it makes perfect sense for him to ditch the treasure and grab the girl. What's he going to do? Buy uh, forty pairs of uh, silk. Uh, breeks. <laughs> Red silk breeks, man. Red Dude, silk. I love that. Uh, and that's the only thing I think that's better in the, uh, the Pete Craig Russell adaptation, other than it's beautiful. Um, he actually didn't give him the fur diaper, which, uh, I mean, I like the fur diaper and all, but it's kind of, it's kind of wrong as well. It's very wrong. It makes him iconic. It does yeah, make him that- iconic. You know, you know who you're looking at. But don't red silk breeks? Couldn't red silk breeks be just as iconic if that was the choice that were made? <laughs> I, I, I think like he never wears the same thing twice in any uh, any particular. He's always wearing shorts, basically, right? But, I mean, Conan has no heirloom possessions that he carries from stories, right. like the named sword that's always his thing. He right. doesn't have an amulet. He doesn't have a ring. He has nothing. Every story, he loses everything and starts from scratch. He just totally includes Conan and his black mane, right? <laughs> yeah. And his mighty fuse. I love fuse. his fuse. His panther-ish fuse. Yes. In fact, I, I started going through highlighting all the times he's compared to a cat. There's a couple of things where he's not compared to a cat, but it's almost always panther, um, which is like even his sandaled feet, right? Made no noise, no more noise than a panther's, a pads. And it's like, well, yeah, we get it. He's a panther. (laughs) (laughs) Stalking around in the dark and he can almost see perfectly in the dark. Um, And of course, panthers or mountain lions would have been the uh, big cat that Howard would have had mm. the most chance of being familiar with. Mm -hmm. Well, Howard also compares people to tigers a lot, especially cult. Yeah, yeah. There's like big cats, really. uh, He's got a nice scar on his face, too, right? (laughs) 
Um, that's how we know the difference between if you take two pictures of Conan characters in in Savage Sword and you don't have any textual context. Cull's the one with a scar on his eye, but they're both wearing little mini skirts or fur diapers, right? <laughs> and of course, Solomon Kane is easy to pick out. <laughs> oh yeah, he's got a hat. He's got a hat and a sword and a pistol. So, Will, I believe this is your first Conan. You said. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is the first Conan story I've read from start to finish. What did um, you think of it? Oh, yeah, it did a lot for me in a lot of different ways. Um, I really am into, like, just how truly bleak a person Conan is. Um, like, it's just, uh, I mean, you get the sense that he's just, like, addicted to risk-taking, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's just doing this because, like, that's, like, the only way he can feel. Um and so I really appreciated that aspect of the story. Um, it has like everything in it that I would want out of like a Western, mm-hmm. which like makes sense because like of like when and where Robert E. Howard was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes sense to me. Um, I, I really like the like bleak man comes to town uh, kind of story. Uh, I uh, I really uh, I'll just say I was like really fascinated with like. Um, uh, like the hand of like H. Ryder Haggard in this story. Oh yeah, uh, mm-hmm. oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, I think Trish touched on that already. Uh, but it's like this is definitely just like a different version of like the Aisha story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, Aisha also... done sort of realistic, right? Like if you're gonna have a, a god, yeah, it's a scam, right? So these guys come back from Africa and they say we met a, a an Ivory Queen who ruled over a. Uh, a mixed race of people, like literally, that's what it is, right in here. Um, and she lived but it's forever. Literally, the Amahager. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and in fact, the um, the tunnels and all the right, it, it is absolutely uh, inspired by. I think maybe not directly, but yeah. I mean, I just love that at the ending he says, um, "We're going to go over and do this exact same scam in the next country over," right? So and the, this is actually the right part of Africa too. Almost, it's not it's not perfect, but it's approximately the right part of Africa. And I mean, I mean it's, it's pre it's pre Ice Age Hyborian Africa. I can I can forgive some of the geography. <laughs> it, well, and it's uh, you know, and it's got the um, it's got like the uh, the the made up kind of like racial mythology mm-hmm. that uh, Trish touched on earlier. I thought it was. Uh, it was not a mistake that like uh, the nation of Zimbabwe had like Shemitish archers. You know, the theory mm-hmm. at the time was, uh, uh, I mean, the made up theory at the time was uh, that, uh, of course, like great Zimbabwe was like, you know, built by King Solomon. Cause mm-hmm. like, obviously the like people who like centered their cultural life around it, like could have like no relationship to it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, well, they're, they're, they're just trying to figure things out. They're completely wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, in fact, uh, there's a. I always go back to that great um, John Buchan story, the, the Grove of Ashtaroth, which is oh, yes. set in that same area, and it has one of these these uh, in the town of uh, Kashimi or whatever it is that we never actually see on screen, right? That we get the callback. Uh, Ke- uh, I don't know. I don't know. Remember how to pronounce it, but. Uh, the capital of the kingdom that they're in or whatever it is, the tribal area that they're in, they have beehive huts, 
right? And then we get that reflection of these conical domes of uh, the Great Zimbabwe, right? In uh, I think somebody pointed out, um, I think it was on uh, the Chromecast, that um, Howard uh, Howard has a country called Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe didn't exist <laughs> as a country in Africa when he was writing about it. He's just naming the whole country after that one part of, you know, a colonial capture. So that, that was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, the, the idea is that this is, um, again, uh, a white kingdom inside of an African nation. Well, Howard has a whole cool thesis going on and he's still trying to prove it to Lovecraft at this point, right? He's like, no, it's always collapse. Barbarians come in and everything collapses, right? Civilization is is a passing fad. Collapse it's, it's is the a, real it, thing. It, it's a very sp- Spengler, uh, Spenglerian sort of view of the cycles of history. Civilizations rise and eventually they come decadent, and then they get knocked down, and it all starts all over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just think about how he was always arguing this with how uh, with Lovecraft. Um, and he puts it into almost everything he writes, it seems. I mean, not everything, but a hell of a lot. It was really important to him. I don't think that it was very important to, uh, Lovecraft, because he doesn't, he never really does that massive scale thing, except in, I guess, uh, the Yithian story, right? The Shadow Out of Time. Mm-hmm. What about That's, at the Mountains of Madness? Yeah, there's that too, I guess. And that is a later one. So maybe there was some influence on there. But again, those are not human civilizations. <laughs> Whereas Howard's, Howard seems very specifically grounded in sort of this, um, and, and he's right to think so. Like once you start looking for, you know, ancient civilizations, uh, on earth, you find them everywhere, right? It's the only thing that we see are the leftovers, the things that don't rot. So we see the, the pyramids, we, and, and, uh, the real, life version of where this story is set right is uh it's just north of sudan what's it called nubia nubia right yeah. and so, so they have like they have an, an amazing pyramidal you know leftovers they, they, their own unique pyramids which are Absolutely. very much steeper than the egyptian they're smaller but they're these really steep sharp their culture pyramid. wasn't a culture of pyramids that's just what we have left right that's the only thing, like, you say, uh, look, I found a skull, right? And you say, wow, a long time ago, they're really into skulls. <laughs> what it is, yeah. is there was a guy, and he had a brain, and he knew how to weave things, and how to hunt things, how to cook things, and he had songs, and now all we have left is a skull, right? And so, if you look around the world, you will find collapse civilizations everywhere right or, or, or even places where like you can't find them anywhere i mean like i mean there's theories that there's probably lots of remnants of early early civilizations like say at the bottom of the black sea or sure off the or or, or well, there's some in the mediterranean that got, absolutely got flooded flooded up and we can't find them anymore they're just gone because yeah. the waters rose. The the mounds of Moundsville, Ohio, or whatever it is, right? Oh no! Oh oh oh! oh yeah, the mound. Oh, you mean Missouri, Missouri and Illinois? Right. Yeah. We call them the mound builders because the only thing we know about them is they they built mounds, 
Well, but, they, they've dug into them and found some things, but yeah, we've lost, we lost some, and we lost. We don't that have their in, songs. We don't have in historical in historical time. I mean, they were a going concern just a thousand years ago. Not even thousands. Yes. I was just a thousand years ago. They were. So a Howard's giant not city. wrong, really, right? He's not really wrong. It's just that Lovecraft's not really interested in it, but Howard's obsessed by it. He thinks it's really cool, and so. He's, we've actually got the layer upon layer in this great Dungeons and Dragons style. Uh, it's, yeah, I, it's I, a very I, much, it's correct. a module, right? I, 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 I was going to mention, I was going to mention that cringingly. I thought like, well, this could make a really great scenario to run characters through, have them as one of the sides in, in this con game and have to set, have them run, in, run into their opposite numbers. Inside of these temples and caverns, it'd make a like, great, that would be fun. great VR game and make a great computer game, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And this is the uh, Pygmalion's uh, spectacle scenario. I would like to do <laughs> absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, like I just want to go through as like Conan and just like you and, know, and, and such, you're going to search the base of the of the cliffs for uh, this hidden entrance, or you're just going to. You know, use Climb your up. climbing abilities, right? <laughs> I, I come from a, a race of hillmen accustomed to scaling uh, forbidden crags. That's right. Uh, Roll that climb check. <laughs> That's right. And and <laughs> as I point out, you know, there are other players. Bit Yakin, oh, uh, not Bit Yakin. Bit Matkri has got his own. <laughs> his, he, he's got his own band. You know, yeah, if, if things had worked out slightly differently, uh, it would be a Bit Matkri story and not a Conan story, right? Conan's. Right. Able to tell the story because he didn't get his head cut off and hung from a tree for some reason. Well, Ben Mecri didn't get his head cut off. His buddy did. Ben Mecri's just not in this story. Right. Okay. Who is the who's yeah, the buddy yeah, hanging from the tree? You mentioned at the end that he's a, that he's still a threat and he could be used as a threat in order to get the the pun to give the gold over. So yeah, he's he's still around. Yeah, good point. It's just his, his lackey's not. His I forgot, lackey loses. I forgot that. to mention um, that. In this was in I think issue twenty five of Savage Sword in nineteen seventy seven. Um, I I didn't have a copy of that, but I do have the Conan Saga reprint um, to read through. As I also printed up the original one, um, and just loved the. Uh, it's a really good adaptation, very solid adaptation. Um, I loved the art in that the faces oh, really were very expressive. You had different all different kinds of camera angles. Oh yeah. Um, it was it was really a nice nice piece of work. Yeah, I mean Conan's sort of the least interesting uh, figure, you know, in it. Given he's wearing the fur diaper, and we've seen him before. He's got you know a few good facial expressions, but but the actual you know when he, we see that splash page showing the uh, the the wall and the temple, and combined with the terrific use of the actual Howard prose to give that. Yes that you know color to a black and white image it's just astounding now in the in the uh 2006 p craig russell adaptation i think there are some beautiful images but he gets the geography slightly wrong um he has the wall but he makes it a, a valley that, like there is no other side of it and then i remember on the chromecast they were talking about this being a uh like the caldera of a volcano. And I don't think there's any good evidence other than it's sort of caldera like because it's no. in the middle of a plane, right? Yeah, it would have to be a huge caldera. It would have to be like 
it would have to be continent-sized. Yeah. Mexico, yeah, it'd have to be, yeah, way, way too large for it to be practical. It doesn't really make sense. Um, now, that that isn't to say that you, there are no geographical things uh, similar. You know, what's the what's the one on, in the Western states they used in? Uh, it's like the Devil's Pyramid or whatever it's called. They used it in two thousand. No, not two thousand one. Uh, the one where the aliens come and the guy makes. Oh, you talking about Devil's Tower? Yeah, Devil's Tower, right? So Devil's Tower is kind of a what you get when you've got a it's it's a volcanic plug, right? So the rest of the ash of the the volcano is gone, and you've got you know it's all been eroded away. It's kind of like a mesa, except it's it's you know some very hard material, and all the other uh, lighter materials have been taken away, and you've got just the inside of a of a uh, volcanic yeah a, volcanic a, plug, a, a yeah. previous volcano right it, it, it's pretty awesome to say it's a pretty amazing thing to look at right so I'm not sure anything like this can geologically exist but I don't care because he made <laughs> it so awesome um and like think it, it, he says that this is actually like this is a palisade in that the actual kingdom that has been collapsed, right, had its capital and the palace for the king inside of this this uh, curtained wall with secret entrances and such. And then the city was outside of it. And now it's all jungle, right? Just jungle everywhere. A beautiful, uh, lush jungle. But what happened to that civilization? It's all gone, except it's a little more Spartan uh smartly uh, taken over inside of this this curtain yeah I, I mean i love the way that howard described describes that like said nevertheless he went warily sword in hand his restless eyes combing the shadows from side to side his springy tread making no sound on the sword all about me saw signs of an ancient civilization marble fountains voiceless and crumbling certain circles of slender trees whose patterns were too symmetrical to have been chance of nature Forest growth and underbrush that invaded the evenly planned groves, but their outlines were still visible. Broad pavements ran away under the trees, broken and with grass growing through the wide cracks. He glimpsed walls with ornamental coppings, lattices of carbon stone that might have once served as the walls of pleasure pavilions. Zargeba is the guy who who got his head cut off. Zargeba, thank you. Yeah. Um, And then notice that uh, the plan on Tutmakri's part was to take just some of the teeth of Gwalor and plant them in Zimbabwe beside the squat gold idols of Dagon and Durketo. So Dagon's getting a shout out. In here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what Durketo looks like. I kind of have a vague description of Dagon, but I imagine they're both, you know, pretty scary looking. Um, and w- what about the, in the, uh, the adaptations, we get a, um, the thing that they're worshiping. Um, we get a picture of it. What was the name of that god? Hator. Yeah, another. Is it a another B one? Did you say Dator? Hey, I think it's Pator. Oh, right, right, right. Pator. Yeah. So that's the Palishtim. Is that Palishtim. the name? That they're they're there's like layers and layers of strata here, right? Of different different um, cultures that have come in and moved in and taken over, and. And I like that at the bottom of it all are these servants that they're never even given a name, right? I, I, I think of them as, as very ghoul-like. They're kind of 
drawn like ghouls in one of the adaptations. Uh, sort yeah, it of feels like, like they were like bound magically, perhaps against their will. They don't. <laughs> yeah, they're not super bright. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, whatever Bitiakin did to have them come with him seems to have fallen away. But they do want they they do grab the uh, chest full of jewels, right? One of them does. Oh, and uh, by the way, uh, literal literally happens in this story. Uh, hashtag leg cling. <laughs> yes. Literally happens. Uh, I I think this is very, very important. Iconic. Yeah, it is. It's like um, you think the fur diaper is iconic. No, no, no. Leg cling. That's the real <laughs> thing. Doesn't matter what his his pants are. I mean. That's less important. Although I noticed that her costume is kind of a weird thing going on with her costume. Maybe that's the only magical thing that happens. Um, Yalaya. <laughs> I love her name. <laughs> as soon as we're introduced to him, her, um, Conan shows up like, Oh my God, she's there. And then, uh, he's like, wait a second here. Um, Yalaya. <laughs> You're a liar. <laughs> All the oracles are liars, right? Um, and yeah, Howard's definitely having fun with that. But notice that um, we get we get the idea that this girl has been brought in as a replacement. They take the the costume off of the actual uh, princess, right? Put him on her, and then the princess shows up again later <laughs> with the same costume. How's that work? Well, so it says somewhere explained. that there there must be a room of sacred vestments that they just take and renew every once yeah. in a while. The servants are uh, redressing her. Her clothes that's, rot away every couple decades, right. and they have to keep redressing her. That's right. She's fine, right? <laughs> but her her jeweled uh, breastplate and her uh, diamond on her head or whatever it is, and then her silk pants... Um, or pants dress. I don't know what what what's that called? The short skirt. Short skirt. skirt. Right. Yeah, uh, needs to be uh, replenished. So they 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 come by. They see that somebody stripped their goddess, and oh gosh, run to the closet, get some replacements. Um, they are definitely doing some work, but these these uh, servants don't really. They don't. They don't seem to be doing it based on a system. They just seem to be following like a yeah. Maybe that's the magic, right? That he casts like a, an instinct. Yeah, it, it feels a bit like uh, robots. They've been left to run a little too long. Yeah, so you're, running, right. But, you're right. You're right. Because they what's, forgot why they're doing it. They're just like these are the instructions. This is what we do. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of um, uh, interesting if you pair it up with what the the priests are doing, right? Because they're following an ancient system as well. They, they think if we follow this system, uh, we can get reliable information from from uh, the Oracle, and that'll help our politics. I always think of like, what's the modern version of that? Because we, you know, we obviously don't have an Oracle that uh, when you know what should we no, invade but I would, I would, Iraq? I was Nobody of, goes and. <laughs> talks to a particular oracle uh, religious figure right they they might go try and convince the UN <laughs> you know get NATO you know have a conference or whatever and present their evidence but they don't say well what's the oracle think right but you know the story of uh, the king of Lydia and and uh, 
in Persia and the and the uh, Oracle of Delphi, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a number of stories. One of them is about the uh, only the wooden walls will hold, right? No, no, this is the one that like if well the king Olivia <laughs> said, well, ask the Oracle, what would happen if I attack uh, Persia? And he said, and they said, great kingdom will fall. Yeah, the mm. kingdom that fell was his right. own. Oops. Well, it was the Themistocles. He 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 uh, says, you know, the city of uh, Athens is in distress because the Persians are coming. The Persians are coming, right? And yep. uh, so they send send to the oracle and say, "Hey, uh, what should we do?" And the oracle says, "Only the wooden walls will hold." And like, we don't have wooden walls. I mean, we are kind of working on uh, the upgrading the stone walls for the city. And then they bring this information back to Themistocles, and he says, oh, duh, we're known for our ships, yo. It's a metaphor. <laughs> so get those ships out in the harbor. Get the get them up, uh, prevent them from crossing. These are a land-based army. Um, to, to me, I think, like, the modern version of that, the only thing that's close is when you've got, like, some horrible political decision that the politician doesn't want to make. So they put it off. You know, instead of sending for the oracle and that takes three months or whatever, they say, um, let's, uh, let's have a task force. <laughs> and then when the task force delivers their white paper, right, they can, they can interpret it whether, uh, you know, most, mo- it did the most important thing, which is get it off of the schedule, right? Push it out of the schedule. And then if people still care when the white paper comes in, then you can interpret it however you want. You can say, well, we're going to do this little half measure. Or we can, we're going to adopt it wholesale. Generally, they just don't do anything about it, right? It's sort of, task force is a way of, it's a delaying tactic, but. Or um, you hold a poll, but you write the questions so ambiguously that you can write right, the answer means right. whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, slanting questions. Yeah. And then, of course, this can go tremendously wrong <laughs> with, um, with uh, when some government decides to hold a uh, a referendum on whether they should stay in a economic union, <laughs> yes, um, you know it sort of backfires on you. Um, but uh, there's actually there are incidents where the oracle sort of version of us, you know, you get some wise person. Uh, I, I mean, I guess there's been lots of these theoretically lately. And they're terrible usually, but there's a famous one for North America. You guys probably don't know it because you're not up here. Um, but, uh, you know, the United States sort of quit rec- uh, recently in recent history, uh, the British Empire. You heard about yeah, that? Heard that. Okay. I mean, they, uh, they, they have some special day for it. Maybe yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, Canada didn't, didn't, uh, like have no problems. And there was actually a bunch of rebellions and the upper and lower Canada's, as they were called back then, uh, Ontario and Quebec today, um, were having uprisings and, and, uh, the local governments were, you know, doing shitty jobs and Britain comes in like, what the fuck's going on guys? And they send this guy named Lord Durham. He comes in and he basically just listens to the people and sees what actual is in the books, right? And he says, holy shit, you guys are totally corrupt. And he writes uh, a letter to the UK and says, okay, here's what we got to do. We got to give them, you know, sort of actual autonomy so that they can have their own councils and have, you know, democracy instead of this uh, everybody, everybody's, uh, everybody in the family of the governor gets to run things and 
gets every contract. Um, so these, these kinds of consultations with higher authorities or separate authorities can go right. But I think Conan and Howard are mostly right in that it's all a scam, right? Generally. So if you get like an actual politician who, who believes in the system, like what, <laughs> what are you talking about, dude? What a shocker. And of course, that is kind of what gets you killed too. That's kind of the point here, right? Is that by believing in these gods, if, if you get scammed, you're going to get scammed. And then you take that information back to your community. You're going to have your minerals res- resources stolen from you and your country occupied after you get uh, into a war with your neighbor. It's, well, it's I think scary. Conan actually did believe in gods, or at least he believed in Krom. I think it's that organized religion uh, that he believed was in a, inevitably run by scammers. He, he He's swears, not a fan of he swears by Crom, but I, I swear by God, right? I swear to God, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Say something like that, right? I don't think, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, uh, Samaria, right? We never see it. Crom never shows his face, never show, like, I guess the only way you can shove Crom into it is like, uh, when Conan survives something he shouldn't be able to survive. Um, and, the, uh, but I don't think that no, that's, no, no, he says that Krom never answers prayers, yeah. which is yeah. a convenient kind of God <laughs> if you don't well, yeah, it's want his, to have to prove it. it. It is, like, it's hard to remember. I mean, when I was a kid, it, and you're living in a rural community, there's a ton of pressure to think about God, like a uh, lot. Yeah. Like a ton of pressure. And today, if you're living, I felt it as soon as we moved to, you know, an urban area, it's gone. Right, that pressure's gone, um, and then as time goes by and the internet comes in and you can actually read uh, some books that aren't available at the school because they don't ta- hold those books, you can find like facts. Oh yeah, like this is all, this people have been thinking about how big a scam all this is for a long time, right? It's not just me, which is helpful. Um, so uh, the fact that he's never, uh actually help like if you look at the movies i guess there's some access to divine intervention or in queen of the black coast there's but see even there that's not a god's will it's her will right um belit's will to come back from the dead rather than godly intervention i think that that's i think that that's sort of a cool takeaway like howard is so different from lovecraft you know, Lovecraft will, you know, pick up somebody else's God and throw it in there, but he's focused on a completely different thing. And, and yet Howard is really, he's, he's intellectually a heavyweight, but he acts like, uh, like think of how much focus here is on the construction of the module and how little attention that the player character gives to the modules, <laughs> you know, backstory. Like he, Conan doesn't revel in these, these facts that he's given, right? He just says, "Oh, okay, this is what I need to do next, and this is how I'm going to get out of this." He's a hack and slash player who's just going exactly. for the gold. Exactly, yes. he reverts to type. It literally the, the says, DM is like, "I have all this backstory." Exactly, <laughs> and we and just, just as readers through killing things. What are that's you doing? right. He just, you know, I, I try and I try and put him on the right path by having the floor collapse out from under him, so he can see it because he wasn't going down the right path, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> Dude, I put all these monsters in here for you to enjoy the rich backstory. Um, I feel like he, I, like he's done that before in the Slithering Shadow. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it felt like um, Conan was getting sort of um, upset with the fact that the DM was trying to drive him down different paths. Conan's <laughs> 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 not a fan of the, the railroad. Get me out of here! <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I, I was, the, was like, can, he's... can we return to the the backstory for a moment? Absolutely, it's lovely. Yeah. Um. So, um. Uh. One uh big piece of the backstory we haven't uh, touched on, which is like one of my uh like kind of obsessions in this kind of fiction, is like the ape fantasies here. Mm-hmm. Um. Like we've been talking about the the servants a lot, but didn't it say that they were like ape people yeah it's kind of it's i'm saying they're ghouls but they're actually sort of half men right Ape. you know what i think they are are uh mangani what are mangani <laughs> uh the uh, I, I know trish is laughing i was hoping trish would like erb uh, <laughs> yes. uh yeah the uh uh the race of um uh, uh australopithecus that raised tarzan okay oh oh, oh. And he talks a lot about how in the jungles there's like all these like ape men, and so you have this like uh, anthropological fantasy going on uh, here too, where there's like oh yeah, there's holdovers of like prehistoric types of men uh, in this like jungle in pre Ice Age Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought like that super the- gorillas all over the place. Definitely. Yeah, and I think uh, in this context, like it's the the servants seem a lot like the like uh like degenerated atlanteans uh of opar uh, mm-hmm. uh where uh the, yes. yeah. yeah um cuz uh, those people are mixed with the the mangani so uh so yeah you you have the like ghoul aspect but i think there's like an ape man aspect in this story that i just like found like very captivating and like also just like you can just like go right over it because mm-hmm. like uh, Conan, like Conan is the does. hack and slash player. You know he doesn't care about eight men. Like that's like me exactly. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I actually thought that they. At that point. I, I I was I was not that uh, I didn't see I knew that they were sort of AP, but I didn't um, the the ERB reference that I thought they were much more like was the Monster Men. You remember that Edgar Rice Burroughs story? This is like basically there's a it's kind of a weird story because um, the main character, he thinks he's one of the monster men, but it turns out he's he's just like he's sort of a Tarzan raised by these monster men who are literal creations of a Frankenstein style doctor. And then the girl shows up on the island and there's sort of a who's going to possess the girl thing. And he, we don't know exactly if he's well, I mean, I guess we're supposed to know he's he's better than these other monster men, but he thinks he's just a monster man. You guys know this story? No. Somehow no, I've missed I, I'm this one. Oh, it's, I a cool, it's, it's a cool book. I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Um, there's a comic book adaption of it right now uh, from uh, oh, yeah. American okay. Mythology. Uh, I have like one issue. Uh, it's a 1913 <laughs> but, um, novel. Very early. Um, and uh, it was in All Story. And appeared as a man without a soul. That's a, another title for it. Um, but it, it it's kind of like the island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, I'll just read mm-hmm. the description here. Uh, Cornell University professor Arthur Maxson 
Uh, of course, that's a very ERB name, right? <laughs> Maxon, uh, who has been experimenting in the creation of artificial life, travels with his daughter Virginia to one of the remote P- P- Pamarung Islands of the East Indies to pursue his project. Their departure is noted by an int- with interest by a young man, Townsend, Townsend J. Harper Jr., who is quite taken with Virginia and determines to find out where they are going. In Singapore, Maxon uh, commissions Dr. Carl von Horn to take the remainder of the way, take them the remainder of the way to their destination by, and he's, oh, this is way too long a description. But basically, there's pirates, there's these monster men who are ape-like, but they are artificial creations, and then he, I think he gets hit on the head, and he thinks he's one of them. Uh, he sort of, yeah, he becomes an amnesiac, and then, uh, you know, and then it, there's the turn so that, you know, he becomes worthy of the girl at the end. But he thinks he's a man without a soul, just like these other monster men. And, like, that's a big, like, for yeah. some reason, that's a really important detail. Like, he has no soul, therefore he can't have the girl. It's like, dude, nobody has a soul when they're created. No soul. <laughs> right? But for, for Burroughs, that's very important. <laughs> for, for the readers, like, why is this so important? Um uh, yeah, it's it's not nearly as good in in the backstory as Howard is here, and honestly, I I love Burroughs, but the prose, uh, I mean, those opening paragraphs just describing everything as as beautiful as as it is. Uh, the cliffs. Oh, Rose, he's a much better writer than Burroughs. He's oh, beautiful. He's a poet, right? He's a poet. Is the real thing. The cliffs rose sheer from the jungle, towering ramparts of stone that glinted jade blue and dull crimson in the rising sun, and curved away and away to the east and west above the waving emerald ocean of fronds and leaves. It looked insurmountable, that giant palisade with its sheer curtains of solid rock in which bits of quartz winked dazzlingly in the sunlight. The first opening two sentences are beautiful. Like, and... He doesn't. It's full of that. It's he doesn't keep it up like continuously. It's not. It's not as ornate as like you idiot and Clark Ashton Smith. Like he can. He can make a short story like a polished gem with every facet. Uh, uh, like they're prose poems, right? He drops that, and then he'll come back to it and give give touches here and there. But once he's described the the color of Conan's pants. He doesn't come back to that, right? No, no he does. He doesn't. He doesn't feel necessary to repeat the same. That's exactly beats right. Every time, but but he, but he hits so many different beats mm-hmm. that that feel it feels lush. I mean, it's not it's not Clark Ashton Smith, but there's plenty of there's plenty of description and plenty of immersion and plenty of ways to visualize, like what like when he goes and finds finds the throne and, and that broad lofty hall and the gems that he describes all encrusting the throne and he wishes he could take away the throne if he but it's of course it's a fortune in itself it's just mm-hmm. like it's just so beautiful and uh, this is how, why howard stories work as a series of tweets exactly sentence. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> every yeah. sentence is gorgeous and then even like the the description of like this is the part lovecraft would have loved right the architecture right? <laughs> like yes. the portico and the the uh there's balustrades and and we've got those twin um arches over the running subterranean river right 
all of the, it's uh, somebody tweeted it this morning and I've seen it. Other people talk about it as well. It's, it's an Indiana Jones story in the sense that it's got this temple that's, you know, been long abandoned and been taken over and recently taken over and they're mining for the Sankara stones, right? <laughs> and it li- there's literally like a choice in that movie where he has to choose between the girl and the Sankara stones. I think, I think that's what happens. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, and he chooses to, uh, get the girl, right? Or maybe it's the kid. I, I don't remember. He saves a person over the Sankara stones, but he actually catches one of the Sankara stones and gives it back to the village that he got it from in the first place. That's the difference between Indiana Jones <laughs> and Conan. Conan is, is, uh, is Belloc, right? Yeah. Except more competent. Right. But, but then you have a uh, last crusade where, where, where the girl, instead of reaching for Indiana Jones and safety, reaches for the Holy Grail and falls to her death. Right. So it's like showing, well, yeah, showing, but she was a Nazi, so it's okay. Yeah, she was a, she was a Nazi, but it's also showing that like the greed, greed doomed her. She she That's chose right. her fate, as it were. Yeah. She could yeah. have been and then Andy does the same thing when he slips and his dad is trying to talk him out of it. That's right. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's like and then it's, and, it's and, actually and a pretty good movie, even though it's it's you know it's the worst of the three. They sort of get progressively worse, but um, it's still is no, no, no. worse than the th- third. You no, know, yeah, no, there it's a no steep fourth. it's a steep cliff. Okay, but. <laughs> As steep as this cliff, uh, <laughs> no niches of mummies. That's true. Hard, it's a hard climb to to save it. Um, on the other hand, I think uh, the the beauty of the the choice here at the end is that he, I keep trying to bring this up and I keep forgetting. Okay, so I I want to tell you there's a sequel to this. Can you guys hear about this? No, tell us more. Uh, I think it was Elspreg de Camp. Wrote a oh, sequel right. called did, The did. Ivory Goddess, and it's set in Punt, and it seems to sort of recapture the the stuff that's in here. Um, I must have read it years ago, um, because it seemed like that's one of the really cool things about Savage Sword is, um, they would fill in the gaps in between, and because, uh, Howard is so good at doing backstory doing the the groundwork for this module mm-hmm. um you don't notice that it's a sh- it's sort of like an inferior product as much because they're just mining little bits that are left like uh, mostly Roy Thomas was mining the language and the little bits that are scattered in there that we may not have focused as much on and then you get a guy like Elspreg Ducamp who you know much of his career is riding on the coattails of of what Howard laid down. I think that I think that's a little unfair to say that I didn't Camp say was all, on. but much. I mean, uh, Lynn some, Carter and some, uh, not, think of those I books, mean, right? The only reason I'm reading uh, a, a, a Carter Howard joint is because there's a Howard in there, right? I mean, he. I mean, I mean, his 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 Conan, his Conan stuff. I'll say, yeah, that was on his coattails. But the, his science fiction, his original fantasies, his other his time travel. That's not. If you ask the general public, you know, what do you know about Elsbrig de Camp? I think they're going to make the association with Conan before they do. The before, general public isn't going to know who he is at all. But, I, mean, <laughs> I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But you know what I mean <laughs> as well, like the general is- reader. Walking through no. the old used bookstore that doesn't exist anymore. 
that's the association I have with him anyways. And then I know he did his own stuff on his own. Who is the dipshit who said that this was a bad, one of the worst stories on the Wikipedia entry? You remember anybody else see that? Reception, let's see. Fritz Leiber rated it among the worst Conan stories. Quote, Oh my God, Fritz Leiber. Repetitious and childish. That's a hot take. I wouldn't call this a great story, but it's perfectly serviceable. (laughs) Listen to this. Repetitious and childish, a self-vitiating brew of pseudoscience, stage illusions, and the uh, quote-unquote genuine supernatural. I, I disagree with everything there. Yeah, that's a very hot take. Yeah, and like... Did he maybe not like the racial stuff in it? It doesn't say that. It says repetitious and childish. He said pseudoscience. Uh, where's this? Uh, I'm not even sure what he's talking about. Yeah, me neither, but... Uh, but I, mean, I, I think I think this is like a case men? of... I, I, I mean, if he's comparing... He doesn't... He's not even comparing it to other stories. Maybe there's a, a greater quote. Oh, I can dig this out, actually. It's in Fantastic May 1968. I'll dig that out. You guys talk while I dig that out. <laughs> oh, dear. So one thing I kind of liked about this story, uh-huh. um, you were talking about sort of the Afghanistan scenario where mm-hmm. a different country coming in trying to take over something. Howard dealt with that directly a number of times oh, in yeah. the Francis X. Gordon I love those uh, stories, right? El Borak. Mm-hmm. And in that, you know, you've got the powers and Gordon's playing them off each other and he like plays the game better than them and comes out ahead, especially the Hawk of the Hills. Yeah, no, he, Howard is like people. I think are likely to think of him as a sort of. I think people think Conan is Howard in a certain sense, right? He's a box. Like I, I think I tweeted to you, Will. He's a boxer poet, right? But yeah, he's he's a heavyweight intellectual who didn't have anybody around him to to talk to, I think is what it is. Like, you know, he's living in a small town. Um, if you read that final letter, he wrote, writes to Farnsworth, right? Asking for money. He's comes across almost like a, he's trying to be a gentleman, but he's, he's begging. It's fucking pathetic. It makes you really sad to read. Like I need money. My mom's dying. We're not affording this. You know, the bust is on. It's pay my fucking bills, right? (laughs) Oh, pay my, pay me for what I have. I, I, I gotta write, for, I'm gonna send you more stuff, but please pay me for what you owe me. I need the money. And then like kills himself, right? It's like, so if he, if he wasn't burdened down with a bad healthcare system, <laughs> if he wasn't burdened down with, you know, a, uh, a family that was, you know, uh, he's an only child, right? He doesn't have brother or sister to help take care of the family. It's all on him. It's tough. It was really tough. And, and yet he is a, he is a thinker. His favorite stories in those, uh, early pulps that he was reading were like those historical ones, right? Where he's, he's looking at the grand sweep of history and these barbarian invasions. He loved that shit. So I'm just going to dig out this, uh, review, see if I can justify his. idiocy here i I think it's i think it's jealousy myself you know like sometimes i read somebody's writing i'm like damn that's really good no read how much how much library have you actually read jesse um i've read a bit i read the wanderer that's one of his novels that's not that's not really good representative library (laughs) in my opinion have you read any i have yeah i have 
Okay, I'll go. Just, just no, curious. I've read a I'm... lot. I've read a lot of his stuff. It's not, but the thing is, is I don't love it. Not the way I love. Like I like Fritz Leiber. I've I've read a lot of Fritz Leiber, but I don't think he's like he he can be good, but uh, he, he also can be has very a, good. In it. He, he has a much be... longer career, uh, which also you know maybe Howard well, would eventually regression be a, to the mean. Yeah, maybe Howard would eventually become a hack, uh, but I don't think he ever was a hack. Even in his st- all the stuff he's writing for money, I find it to be powerful. You pick some random boxing story, and it's good. And it's good. It's not good in the same way as, you know, uh, some of the other stuff, but he, he really, he was a very, he is like the Conan that's presented here. He's a thoughtful dude, right? He, yeah, he might claim to be, you know, uh, pantherish and all that stuff, but that's sort of the, the, the stuff that he doesn't have in, the stuff he has in common with the people in his town is the, you know, he can be rough and tumble, but his... He wrote about the fantastic, but it is very grounded. Mm. Um, yeah, I was thinking uh, back with the efficiency expert with Burroughs, um, there's the passage about boxing, and he says there's going to be a boxing match, but I'm not going to talk about the actual boxing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because ERB, you know, wasn't an expert in boxing, hadn't written stories or or articles about boxing. You know, mm-hmm. he just didn't want to do the research, so he just skipped past that fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two guys punched each other a lot. One of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, I've got I've got the Wikipedia entry out for oh, not the Wikipedia the May 1968 issue of Fantastic. But before this, Jesse, mm-hmm. I'll just I think you all will be interested in what my like assessment of this story was without much frame of reference my like my thought was you know this is like about as good as something fritz lieber would write hmm. but like better than something cl moore would write is what i thought. oh i know that that's like a hell of a hot take i know that mm. is a very hot take especially since we're doing cl more next week on the podcast what yes alex what where would you like uh, a lot of people are ranking this you know ranking the conan stories i like to put queen of the Plaque coast very high on that list um red nails very high on that list where would you rank this in middle at the bottom I'd, I'd have to say the middle um yeah. it's very solid there's i don't think there's anything particularly wrong with it i feel like it could have been fleshed out i like the backstory it's been I love fleshed the backstory, out a little bit more yeah. um but other than perhaps veil of lost women i don't think there are a lot of really bad conan stories veil of lost women is a good story i <laughs> just just so you know <laughs> I enjoy this. <laughs> we we did do it on the podcast. That's I mean, what I'm I, saying I, is, I, 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 I don't think, think there are bad Conan stories. I think there are stories that are more, more epic. And what what I like about this one is it basically takes place within 24 hours. Right? He's he's climbing that cliff. Um, he had just parked his horse on the bottom of that cliff, right? And by the time he's getting out at the end, out through the tunnel or whatever. He says, uh, if my horse is still parked where I left it and the lions haven't eaten it, we'll move on to punt. So it's not like the horse has been there for a week. It's, yeah, this I mean, story, it's pretty much in real time. It's in real time almost, right? We get, uh, we get a sense that like it's morning. It, it literally is morning, dawn. Um, and I think it might be evening or morning coming out the end. Is there, is there any indication what time it is? Um, at the end? It's not mm-hmm. dark, is it? I don't think so. Let's see. 
Uh, well, said Conan, setting the girl on her feet within the sheltering screen of branches. We can take our time now. I don't think those brutes will follow us outside the valley. Anyway, I've got this horse tied to a, uh, at a water hole close by. If the lions haven't eaten him. Crom's devils. What are you crying about now? Crying about now. <laughs> she covered her tear-stained face with her hands, and her slim shoulders shook with sobs. I lost the jewels for you, she wailed. Oh, wait, she has a Corinthian accent. I I wanted to make that like a valley girl <laughs> accent. <laughs> a valley girl accent? Because it would like, be totally, so good. You lost the ghoul. Right, girls, when, you, when you're playing the, the VR version of this game, and you hear the girl come out with a valley girl accent when she's giving her pronouncements. And, like, Conan says, wait a minute, why would she have a Valley Girl accent? Because <laughs> we don't know what a Corinthian sounds like, other than maybe a Greek accent or something, right? Um, I lost those jewels for you, she wailed miserably. It was my fault. If I'd obeyed you and stayed out of the ledge. Obeyed you, that's interesting. You should have caught the gems and let me drown. Yes, I suppose I should, he agreed. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but forget I immediately it. regret that decision. <laughs> Never worry about what's past. There's a lot of philosophy in Conan as well. Um, there, that line about direct action, he, he reverted to type and he was a direct actionist. It's like, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, I was, I've been thinking a lot about Diogenes. You guys know about him, the ancient Greek guy who lived in a pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty cool dude. Yeah, uh, dude, I love Diogenes. Looking for the honest man. Yeah, yeah, but also like um, when Alexander the Great comes, I, I heard a lot about you. People think you're great. He says Alexander, the guy who's living in a pot uh, uh, beside the sewer with a bunch of dogs nearby, and and he says I I heard I think I hear people think you're important. I'm in town. I'm Alexander the Great. What can I do for you? And he says Get out of my light. <laughs> I'm enjoying the sun. <laughs> I was like, wow, you know, he doesn't take a lot of shit from nobody. Right. Um, and the, the other, uh, there was some stupid video on Twitter that had, uh, um, I was just enjoying my cup. This is me January 1st, uh, some mug. And then they're in a mug store or something. Guy picks up a nice little mug and he's enjoying it. And then, the some horrible things happen and every mug in the entire place gets destroyed. Um, and that's the idea that 2020 is wrecked. Uh, but one of the things Diogenes says is, you know, if you have a favorite, uh, it's actually related to cynicism and, and, uh, stoicism. If you have a favorite cup, get rid of it. Or mug is what I say. Um, you have a favorite mug. And I literally did. I got rid of all my favorite mugs. Now I just have generic mugs. They're all the same. You know, they're all white. Doesn't bother me if one of them gets broken. Because if you have a favorite, and it gets broken, now you're sad. But if you have no favorites, when it gets, when it gets broken, you just pick up another one and you can't feel bad. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool, right? Well, Diogenes says, um, uh, I had a cup. <laughs> and then I saw a boy drinking with his hands, cupping his hands, and I threw my cup away. And I was like, I don't need that shit. He, he's a, one of these tiny house guys, just lives in a pot down by the river. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he Marie Kendo'd his life. <laughs> oh, I, I I didn't watch that show, but um, well, I, I personally prefer a life with peaks and valleys and favorites to a flatline life, which is what it sounds like you are embracing. Well, the other thing is, is in some of the there's a great, beautiful John Waterhouse uh, painting of of him, and there's some like ladies sort of addressing. Diogenes, he's got his lamp. There's a bunch of dogs around. He's living in his 
cracked pot down by the river. Um, and they're like talking to him and they're smiling and he's like, he's really grumpy looking. And then, he, but he's got his scroll. So it's not like you can't have good stories. And he's got like a big pile of onions. I guess that's his lunch. <laughs> he is a really, really, you know, uh, not a guy you want to actually model your life on, but maybe somebody you want to, uh, listen to once in a while when you're collecting too many, I don't know, motorcycles or whatever it is. Maybe. Uh, I, I mean, he provides, he provides a par- parallax on your own life, which mm-hmm. maybe not to emulate, but at least to look at your own from a different perspective. <laughs> uh, but, I, I don't see any evidence of what time of day it is here. Um, no. It, it's, I think it's, well, there's day- light enough to see. From yeah, it's the daylight, cliffs. right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably the next morning. He's been there less than, less than 14 hours or something. But uh, I do have that, uh, full review here. Um, he's reviewing, um, King Call, Conan, Conan the Adventure, Conan the Warrior, Conan the Usurper, uh, and then Conan the Conqueror. This is a typo. Um, so when he talks about Jewels of Gweller, he says, uh, the worst Conan stories, the slithering shadow, red nails. What the fuck is wrong with what? this guy? What? The what? jewels of Gwalur are repetitious and childish and a self-vitiating brew of pseudoscience and stage illusions. Okay, so he's talking about more than one story. And the genuine... Had some pseudoscience. We'll yeah. Around. Genuine supernatural. Through a furious effort... Uh, uh, sorry. Though a furious effort is made to hold the interest with exotic maniacs. What? And hopheads... Sneaking through, <laughs> through the hop endless heads. corridor. I, I mean, there are some hopheads in, uh, is it in Slithering Shadows where they, this is the, yeah, I think there are. They're all, they're all like opium den. Yeah. It, it, there, there's some fun stuff in there. Uh, hopheads. That's hilarious. Sneaking through endless corridors, Lovecraftian monsters, ravaging, ravaging girls, whipping girls, scenes of butcher shop carnage and the like. Uh, oh, no, oh, that's the end of the sentence. <laughs> You can just not like Conan stories? That's uh, not like, I don't like Conan stories. I, it sounds that. right, right? Howard's best prose, While a King Dies, While a King Dies, out, quote, outside the moan of the tortured thousands shuddered up to the stars, the crusted and... Black Circle. Yeah, the crusted Vendihian night, and the conks, the conks bellowed like oxen in pain, spoken by a demon to a man about to die. But a bat has flown over the mountains. Oh, so he's just quoting. Uh, Howard's worst prose is like a raving newspaper editorial. <laughs> what? <laughs> or of a girl being raped by a monster. Quote, all the obscenity and salacious infamy spawned in the muck of the abysmal pits of life seem to drown her in a seas of cosmic filth. That is a pretty great sentence. Um, you know what that one's from, Alex? I don't recognize it. It sounds like Slithering Shadow. It could be. All the obscenity and salacious infamy spawned in the... Yeah, it does sound like Slithering Shadow. Infamy spawned in the muck of the abysmal pits of life. Capital. One of us has read way too many Conan stories. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. So uh, all those things that he's saying about about Red Nails and Slithering Shadow and Jules Guller, which he spells wrong here as well, or just a typo again... um, are all good things. <laughs> Lovecraftian monsters rav- ravaging girls, whipping girls, scenes of butcher shop carnage. Uh, there, there's a great scene, Will, at the end where he tears a guy or the monster, monster man, the uh, ghoul guys, the servants are tearing a guy like a the chicken. Mangani. <laughs> the Mangani. The uh, Mangani 
<laughs> or t- or tearing a dude like a like he's a chicken. Yeah. Uh, it's it's good stuff. Yeah, you I, love cannibals. Who's going around tearing chickens? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Why is that your go-to method? Like, you ever ripped a chicken in half? It's like that. Well, I, I <laughs> assume that it's maybe. been... Yeah, no, you're about to like barbecue it, right? I, I'm sure Howard like slaughtered a chicken before. Mm-hmm. Probably. Yeah. yeah, of course he did. Um, chop, chop. Uh, like yeah, this like mundanely. The, <laughs> yeah, Jesse, this is the third Conan story I've done with you. We've done Shadows in the Moonlight, we did Veil Lost Women, and we did this one. And mm-hmm. I would rank them probably Shadows, Shadows This Veil, if I had to rank the three Conan stories I've done with you. Because I wasn't on the podcast for Slithering Shadow. I don't know where I was. Mm. November 2016, I must have been somewhere, because you just did that one with Will's going to rank Wayne this G- number one. <laughs> At the yeah, top and the, bottom the, of the list. Yeah, what a, my number well, one, one, one It's it's also the worst Conan story that Will's ever That's done right. on this podcast. Trish, where would you, how many Conans have you read, and uh, is it, where would you rank this? Um, I've read probably e. three Conans. quarters of the Conans, if not more. Um, I would rank this. It's a solid story, like mm-hmm. I said. It's just not very inspired i mean i i would prefer the phoenix on the sword tower mm. of the elephant uh queen of the black coast the people mm. of the black circle mm. um beyond the black river is atypical uh, fun but one. fun yeah and red nails all of those i would say are better than this one but this isn't bad interest i i, I always think of the Tower of the Elephant is one of the worst Conan stories. I always forget it's always about it. held up as really good. I don't it's know why that is. my favorites. I don't know. Like, there are things I like about it, but they're not they're not Conan things. It seems like, like, here Conan is set in a scenario, and there's a scenario there, and they're kind of similar scenarios, and that he's going in to do something. But I, I just think, like, what he does there kind of fails. And I think it's, there's almost, like, too much... There's too much magic. It's it's, it's, like, um, it's one of the first ones that he published, uh, and it maybe uh, maybe the character of Conan hasn't quite gelled yet. I mean, because uh, it the, feels a lot the, more uh, like he was the first one, the Phoenix on the Sword, was just mm-hmm. a reskin of another story. Um, he's definitely good at suiting it to his his magazine, right? He's targeting a magazine. He wants to get the cover. Gets a bonus if he gets on the cover. He didn't mm-hmm. get the cover on this one. By the way, the story on the cover of this one, I uh, it's on LibriVox, and I I processed. Uh, I no, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Um, Touching hands of death. Uh, I was thinking it's called um, uh, it's a it's called Tiger Cat by David H. Keller. And there's a whipping scene in it, right? <laughs> um, that's why, uh, you know, <laughs> David H. Keller, like, he was a psychiatrist and, uh, he knew, <laughs> he knew what people wanted. <laughs> Apparently it's whipping. I, I don't get it myself, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Not quite. I mean, just, I, I'm suddenly remembering this, uh, this, the scene in Slithering uh, Shadow has a whipping scene as well. And that did get the cover. No. That nails had one. Right. By the way, I really enjoyed Jesse your uh, tweets about um, Frank Frazetta and uh, his his uh, surefire way of 
getting on the cover was painting Conan and um, the just the way that the oh, people, I don't, I don't think all I the that. people would come from, you know, stop their work and come around. All the ad people would come around and look that wasn't, at That wasn't me. I would love in. to, I would love to take credit for that, but that was not me. I was I not, I, I I'm don't, sorry. Who was that? I don't know. I don't know that much about Frank Frazetta. Oh, I mean, gosh. I, I, I saw that I'm there was a have movie. To look it up now. There was a movie uh, documentary about Frank Frazetta. Have you seen it, Alex? No. I, I saw it was a, like an, I think it was an ad in the DVD. Yeah, I think I got it here in the 2006 adaptation. There was an ad for it, um, and it said, you know, extra hour of oh, here it is. Uh, the Legend Arrives on DVD, Collector's Edition, two DVD set, Frazetta, Painting with Fire, um, available at Barnes & Noble, and uh, interviews. <laughs> sell books. I, 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 do know, I, I do know that, uh, maybe that was a while ago, Trish, if, if it was. I remember there was a, um, Frazetta paints himself and his wife, right? So sometimes you'll see Frazetta in his own illustrations, or his own... Uh, things, but uh, what, what, I think Frazette also used his wife as a model for a lot of the females. But um, I only, I don't really know that much about him. I know a lot more about Virgil Finlay and Margaret Brundage. What'd you guys think of the P. Craig Russell adaptation if you got to see it? The Dark Horse one? Yeah, the 2006 Dark Horse adaptation. I didn't really care for it. I, the art was seemed uninspired to me. Um, some of and, it is. And the faces were all the same. Didn't Don't he look a little young? I think? He does look young. I think he's, uh, somebody said he's supposed to be 38 here um, in this in the chronology. I don't. It doesn't really say in the story. He's obviously been around, uh, given the backstory that we see here. I like. I, I really like the way he draws Yalea or Morella and um, Conan. I think those are amazing, and the, some of the architecture is good. Colors amazing, but he gets straight off the bat. He gets the um, the jungle um, valley wrong, right? It, as soon as he gets over the top of that cliff, it's like it's just another valley, and there's like no outs- exterior wall. He, he... Frazetta girls on Twitter. Um, I think that's his folks, daughter. They treated me like a king over at Lancer. I'd bring the Conan painting in, and the art director would go nuts, calling in everybody in the office to show the piece to show them the piece. They let me keep my original work, so I gave them some of my best work. Cool. I've had the series sold like ten million copies. Frank Rosetta, nineteen ninety. Who tweeted that uh, out? Uh. At Rosetta Girls. Ah, uh, okay. yeah, I believe that's Frank's daughter. Oh, cool. Daughters. My internet went out for a while there. I find it kind of interesting that in the Dark Horse version, mm-hmm. the priests are like at most kind of tan looking. Yeah, it's kind of not... interesting, right? So um, I think that he's shying away from the race angle in here. I mean, when you're when yeah, you're picking pretty clearly when you're picking um, like the in 1977, they were aware uh, that there were. Um, different races. <laughs> um, but, uh, I think there's actually a mistake in giving her hair being blonde as well. That's a very Aisha thing to do, right? So even though Aisha is supposed to be an Arab, 
right? Or at least from the Arab region before. No, she's an Arab. Pull up. Like, yeah, but up. but you yeah. know, two thousand years back, right? So she's she's not a Muslim Arab. She's of the Arab stock, whatever they are, right? In the same well, way. Yeah, that, but she's. Uh, I mean, she's racially an Arab. That's what I'm saying. Say that. Is is yeah. that she is she is from this period of time so far back that the ancestors would be the people who live in Arabian kingdoms now or whatever, right? So, but she has, she should have black hair, which she does, right? But not in the adaptations. They make her a blonde. And I think the reason they do that is, well, it's because it's movies, right? When they're making movies, they, you know, they make it, blonde is sort of a thing in Hollywood, right? So here in the 1977 adaptation, it's all in black and white. Her hair is indeterminate color, but it's not dark black like Conan's, right? Um, the only description in the story is that it's dark foamy, right? Dark, it's called foamy a couple of times, her hair, which gives you a, a, a kind of a color, I guess. And that's. Well, I mean, Corinthians are supposed to be proto Greeks, right? So she's right. probably supposed to be dark haired and. I would guess. Probably curly haired. But also, <laughs> I get the sense that the, that's sort of how you describe, um, uh, a Venus, right? She's, she's born of the foam of, of Zeus's sex with that's, the sea or that, whatever, right? So the fact it, that she's it, got it, this it's, foamy it's hair. That's Zeus, yeah. Uh, is it Cronus her father? Yeah. No, yeah. No, what, yeah, yeah. Kr- Kronos gets castrated, and she winds up rising from sounds, the from right. the castrated. Yeah, I guess parts Zeus didn't get castrated. <laughs> yeah, 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 Zeus did the killing, but right, she, right, he, okay. she's born of His Kronos' step, stepdad. <laughs> um, and then so, the other thing that I don't like in the adaptation, um, uh, the 2006 adaptation, is the flashbacks where we go to the city of uh, Kameshi or whatever it's called. What's it called? Um, Kishan? Yeah. Kishan? Uh, Kishan's the country, right? I don't know. Anyways, we Kishan's the country. We see him in the, we see him doing the court intrigue trying to convince, uh, the people. So, in the adaptation from 77, we don't see any of that. It's, it's kind of far more faithful to the, the flow of the story. Yeah. And I think uh, that's just the perfect way, like, even like the way it starts in the 77 adaptation, he's on the cliff in the very first panel. Whereas in the, uh, 2006, he's in the jungle riding towards it. Then he sees the cliff and then he's climbing the cliff. And then, you know, by page three, like, I don't think this is just a matter of stringing the story out. I think that Howard is a much better, uh, plotter than most people. I mean, Howard knew that these scenes were not very interesting. That's why he didn't put them in the story. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so he Gets gives the exciting gives part. us the info yeah, right. dump after he reaches the top of the cliff, right? He gives us the info dump on how all this came to happen. And that I, I think that narrative technique is actually really helpful. It's it's like uh, when I read uh, Donald Westlake or Lawrence Block, and they, or especially Lawrence Block, he's got a mystery that he wants uh, us to be distracted from. He'll bring in some backstory to distract us from the clue he just dropped, right? It's like a, a very good mystery writer technique. So mm-hmm. if you, if you're, uh, 
a reader like me who isn't there trying to solve the mystery, but is enjoying the, the mystery being solved, you can see it in retrospect, but you didn't necessarily anticipate it. Cause like if you, if you're playing it like a game that needs to be solved and you get a million dollars, if you win this puzzle, you know, you can know where to look, but if you're just enjoying sitting back and enjoying the film or the movie or the book, then those things are, those narrative techniques are incredibly valuable. I think to, to learn. And I don't know how, like, I don't know who Howard's models are other than, you know, by inference, I know, you know, that Lovecraft read a ton. We actually know mostly what books he wrote, uh, you know, what, what books he read by what he's recommending to other people. And we ha- have, you know, the contents of his library and he explicitly says, I'm doing Poe or here and I'm doing this there. But uh, Howard seems to have, it seems to be almost instinctual. And I, I don't think that all of it's instinctual because I know what's his first uh, spear and fang. That's not a great story compared to his later stuff, right? It seems kind of amateurish. No, no thoughts. Mm, I'm sorry. I have anything to argue or add to that. Do you know, do you know, like I I know that Howard was into um, those historical ones that were in early uh, Argosies and adventure. Who's the, who's the guy I'm thinking of? Um, Lamb? Howard Lamb? Yeah, Howard Lamb. Harold Lamb? Should we, Harold Lamb. Was he the golden, was he the golden Lamb. blood guy? Uh, he was the he, he was always writing about like um, Genghis Khan and st- that sort of dude. Right he, he, right, he did biographies and he also did adventure stories, mainly set in Central Asia. Yeah. Is, is there any LibriVox of Howard Lamb? We should Harold, try Harold Lamb. Yeah. Harold Lamb, not Harold Lamb. Ah, I don't know. Harold Lamb, I, not, I, Howard, not if, Robert Howard. If Howard yeah. liked him, I think there's probably some merit in reading him, right? I know that uh, he wrote letters to adventure and stuff, like praising and asking. He had, he had some real interest. There was a section in adventure pretty sure it was adventure where you could just ask the experts right like what kind of swords did they use <laughs> in the in, uh, 6th century uh uzbekistan <laughs> i think that was like one of howard's questions robert e. howard's questions asking for a friend I, i'm asking because i'm <laughs> writing a story and i don't want to get the, the thing wrong and the thing is is you can only get so much information from your your local library, small town library, even interlibrary loans. It's not going to help you out to try and get that kind of detail. Well, back in those days, you, even if they had interlibrary loan, you'd have to know what to ask for. You couldn't just do a search and find what you wanted to order. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like there's three Harold Lambs on LibriVox. Uh, Marching Sands, The House of the Falcon, and... I think, I think this is right. Uh, and Constantinople, a birth of an empire. That sounds, oh no, that can't be right. That's from 57. At least this must be what somebody's asking about. Huh. Okay. I'll, I'll do a different search. But, um, he, he was like a big deal for Howard. I don't know. I don't really know if, um, yeah, Harold Albert Lamb. Okay. So there should be some stuff available to do if, I I, I, lo- I looked on Audible and they're just three long um, biographies. historical biographies. Yeah. Um. So and I didn't see anything on LibriVox, so maybe there just isn't a lot out there to be That's done. Which is a, which is a pity. I know. Uh, 
I know the author Howard Andrew Jones is a big fan of hmm. fan of Lamb's work, and he's a Robert E. Howard fan, is from from what I recall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what, so, what stuff has he written that you've read, Paul? Um, uh, for the for the, for the Jones. for the killing of kings is his is his latest series. He also did a couple of novels set um, in eighth century um, Baghdad, where they basically has a has a swordsman and a uh, and a priest fighting against demons, which is also which is a lot of fun. So, mm. hmm. Enter- entertaining stuff. I've got four Harold Lambs on the PDF page. One is Marching Sands, 311 yeah. pages. The March of the Barbarians, on the Canadian public domain one. That sounds like a Howard one, although it's from 1940, it says. Omar Khayyam. Now, there's a guy I need to get into. Alex, have you read any Omar Khayyam? I haven't. I did watch the uh, 50s movie where oh. he fought the assassins. Cool. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Will, you know who Omar Khayyam is? No, not at all. Oh. He wrote the Ruby Yacht. Yeah, the, oh, uh, yeah. That's, that's the one everybody. Uh, in fact, um, I think Virgil Finlay. Virgil Finlay seemed to be obs- personally obsessed with uh, great poetry, um, and he did a whole bunch of series of weird tales, illustrations, just standalone one-page illustrations with a little quote from from uh, some poem. You know, like he did one from. Uh, uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, and he has like, he's uh, there's a line like uh, this: the thing was following me, and he has the guy in a fedora. <laughs> so it's not <laughs> like it it makes any sense except contextually, um, out of context. It looks great, but he did a whole lot of them on the Ruby out of Omar Khayyam. Um, like most of the time, he just does like one one line from one poem, or two lines from one poem, and. It, Let's see if I can bring it up. Rubiat. There. Uh, illustration of the Rubiat of the Omar of Omar Khayyam. Rubiat. I have to make it longer. Huh. No, I just have the one. I don't know why. But uh, it says... Um, yeah, so I, I figured like there, there must be something to this guy. <laughs> um, and I, I also want to tell you guys, I'm reading... My mom is reading to me from this book called um, The Black Diamonds. I've been tweeting about it a bit. Um, Will, you got to read this book. I think you'll really dig it. Um, It's really, really, really fun. Um, It's called The Two Black Diamonds by Clark Ashton Smith. He wrote it when he's 14 years old. Cool. Very cool. And he he doesn't seem to have, um, uh, in the introduction or somewhere, uh, S.T. Joshi, who, who put it together, um, says there's some evidence of revisions, but not a lot. <laughs> um, and it is, uh, Arabian Nights, basically, except set in 1650, I think. Um, and they start in, it starts in Baghdad, and then they go off into the Indian Ocean, uh, and they get to this island, um, where, uh, they're being chased by this other ship. And there's like a whole bunch of like it's basically a boys' adventure where they're wrestling and punching each other and hitting each other with swords and <laughs> and then they have meals, endless meals. Um, and it's uh, there's an underground river uh, and, and like little dungeons, um, Dungeons and Dragons style uh, playthrough in in Baghdad. And then they get uh, shipwrecked 
on this island. I want to say it's in the Indian Ocean, but he may not have actually got that far. They kept saying they're going to China, but they might still be in the Persian Gulf. In any case, they they get to this island and they find this abandoned castle. Um, there's like tattered hangings everywhere and the doors are really rusted on their hinges. There's some food on the table, you know, that's been rotting for centuries. And then there's some mysterious thing. And then they finally break through this door and there's an open window. And in the open window, through the open window in the moonlight, they see the ship that was chasing them coming so that somehow they get down some other one of these teenage boys finds a passage into the underground of the island castle and they find the temple of the fire worshippers and it is again another Girl version Westy? of Aisha um there's a a burning uh fire that you know it burns regular people but if you're special um it heals all your wounds oh yeah that's definitely right hitting the haggard heart yeah that's straight out of it and and it's it's ridic- it's a ridiculous novel. The plot is all over the place. They there's all these guys coming into the room and they they say tie them up and then uh, and then and then he gives them a stern lecture about what he's going to tell them later. <laughs> and you are my and then he writes them a letter by pigeon or whatever that they intercept and says you are my enemy and I will roast you alive because you are a bad person and like a very long letter. And then, uh, oh, and the part we're in, we're in right now, um, one of the kids is dressed up. I, I call them kids. They're supposed to be men, but they act like 14-year-old boys. Um, he's dressed up. He's covered himself in shoe polish or whatever, and he's pretending to be black, and he's going to the, the Pasha of Baghdad, and he's going to recount all the novel. So he's kind of doing like uh, Arabian Nights and um, – Shahrazad, Shahrazad, right? um, but it's his take on it, and it's mostly about wrestling and tying things up. And it, all, <laughs> the, all the plot is about these two black diamonds that somebody stole at the beginning, and f- they randomly appear in the temple of the fire worshippers in a chest. It's like the teeth of Gwalor. It's very similar, like kind of he's. But he's it's so really just a MacGuffin, yeah. He, 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 but it's it's like a cool MacGuffin, like the the Gwalur sound cool, right? Like, what are they? Are they diamonds? Because that could explain side of the location, and it, but it, that's not important for our. They are like as uh, I think somebody was saying on the Chromecast. It's like um, in uh, Pulp Fiction, the suitcase full of um, or briefcase, whatever full, it is, what yeah. the glowing objects. Those could be the Tithagwellur. Finally, turning up uh, ten thousand years later. <laughs> I like that idea. Right, they are the MacGuffin that's being head cannon accepted. Right. Um. So Omar Khayyam is like one of these uh, exotic foreign or orientalist things that you're not supposed to talk about uh, because Orientalism is super cool for people like Clark Ashton Smith and I mean, how many of the Robert E. Howard stories that are not Conan are literally set? In Shanghai, right, or or Afghanistan, it's great stuff. I love that stuff. That's why he loves it, and that's why I love it so much. I think he's just really good at what he's what he's doing. This is why you know every, people get into Howard usually through Conan, but his everything he writes is great. Did you read that uh, Mountain Man story, Will? I haven't read it yet. Okay, you got to read that. It's terrific. It's a uh, 
It's where he's he noticed a little something near his ear and he was getting stung by a bee. <laughs> he says, "There's a bee stinging you, son." He's like, "Oh, I did notice a little nothing." <laughs> oh, great stuff. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. audio.